0: again for another episode of the dark art society podcast hope everyone is doing well we are <clears throat> excuse me at episode 100 i can't believe we've made it this long uh well that's not true i i plan on i, I always plan from the beginning of doing this podcast for as long as humanly possible and um I guess what I'm trying to say is 100 episodes came around pretty fast. I apologize if you hear a helicopter in the background. Um, it's Friday night as I record this. Things are getting crazy in Monrovia. If you know Monrovia, you'll realize that that's kind of a funny thing to say because it's not true. But anyway, back to the podcast. Um, okay before I uh, announce the exciting news about the exciting guest I have to go to I ah, had this all set up oh okay I'm going to read off the new patrons at patreon that are supporting the dark art society podcast uh, I may have said one or one of these people last time but that's okay um, I have Tra- Travis Bilbray, thank you very much for joining, Indy Matharu, thank you so much, N10 Studio, thank you, thank you, and Wendy Gadzuk, thank you so much for supporting the podcast, we could not do this without you, and uh, your support is greatly appreciated. Can you hear that? Helicopter? I hate hate helicopters. It pisses me off when helicopters are flying around. It drives me insane for some reason. makes me angry. Can you hear that? Okay. Hopefully you can't. Anyway, um, sorry about that. Anyway, uh, what's been going on here? Um, I'm just working on getting some commissions finished. I just did a new uh, frame for a commission. And I'm trying to get – I've been painting for the uh, dystopia book and trying to get in the groove of getting this book done finally that I keep talking about. That's pretty much it in my professional life. Uh, as far as the podcast goes, I am looking into possibly doing a uh, – doing shooting video for the podcast or recording – video using this Zoom software that I've tried out, and it seems pretty cool. So it won't just be an audio podcast, but an audio podcast for the public and a video audio podcast for the Patreon subscribers, maybe at a, I don't know, a certain level. I'm figuring it out. I have to do some tests and stuff, but um, that would be kind of cool. Uh, keep We'll you know, keep the regular audio podcast free, which is what most people want, I think. Most people listen to the podcast. Um, everybody listens to the podcast. <laughs> Nobody watches it because there's nothing to watch. But um, I think most people that listen to podcasts primarily listen to them and don't watch them. But it would be a nice little added bonus to give to you, the Patreon subscribers, and um, – And it might help to, you know, for people who want to see some video, it might help to get more patrons on board. Because we're only at 165 patrons. And just on SoundCloud, we get, you know, at least 300 listens on the first day. So um, there's a lot more people out there that might be willing to join for a small amount of money a month. If you want to join the Patreon and get all these extra goodies Uh, it is patreon.com slash dark art society and I am since I've taken the podcast over and Mike's left I'm sort of still kind of sorting through and trying to figure out um, some upgrades to the Patreon and just you know new ways to do this whole thing so I'm kind of on my own and um, but I'm but I'm working on it And I've got help from other people too. Andrew Hawkins was the one who um, turned me on to Zoom and he got on tonight with me and showed me the ropes quickly. So that was really cool. Thank you, Andrew. He's a big supporter of the Dark Arts Society and a good friend. Anyway, check this out. Well, you already know this because you've probably seen the little ad card thing that we have to make for each show. But – For the hundredth episode, I got one of my dream guests which is Brahm. Now Brahm is – as I will explain in the interview because I've already done – recorded the interview. He's one of the artists that really um, inspired me to start painting as an adult and showed me that it was possible. To perhaps make a living painting monster stuff. So I love his work. He's an amazing painter. He's really great. His body of work is kind of unbelievable when you look at it all. He's painted a lot of paintings and really amazing, great paintings. He's really highly skilled, very creative, and highly ripped off by me included, which I talk about in this interview. Um, this interview lasted over two hours because we kind of got, you know, totally into the conversation. And I think he even mentioned at one point he forgot that we were recording. So that's kind of the goal with these podcasts is just to get a real honest conversation going. And we talked about all kinds of things, but um, lots of great art talk and talk about all kinds of stuff. So I hope that you enjoy this podcast as much as i enjoyed recording it here you go with episode 100 brahm (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, Chet. how you doing? Good. How are you? Right, so I'm I, doing good. You, you responded with a little bark there. You sounded just. I like did. A little I, I am
1: babysitting a chihuahua, so we might have some <laughs> um, some background background effects going during the interview.
0: Like I said, we are a dog friendly podcast, so so yeah. you'll just fit in uh, right at home here. Well, I have to say, I'm kind of nervous. I have, I'm just going to say it straight out because. Uh, I've told you this before. I know more than, <laughs> than once, embarrassingly, but um, for the audience, in case you are not aware, uh, Brahm was like a huge influence on me to start painting. Actually, because uh, I remember, I think it was probably the mid '90s. Uh, a friend of mine named Lilo that I was working with in effects brought your book into work. I think it was your first book, and it was just just completely, you know, life altering to me to see that. There was a book of this artwork that, you know, you could not see anywhere else really other than, I don't know, the the, uh, uh, Dungeons and D&D cards and, you know, the stuff that you, the TSR stuff you're working on. And it's like, there was a book and it's like, this guy is making a living doing these amazing paintings. And so it was kind of like the first moment for me that I realized I could maybe get out of effects or at least, you know, start thinking about like a fine art career um so i thank you for that that was that's like a big it was a huge it was like my big moment for me really (laughs) and it started me on this whole path of fine art really
1: well i'm of, of course that's that's awesome to hear but um you know as far as the mutual appreciation club goes uh what you did what i found fascinating is um to me you know to try to find a path with dark art was a bit challenging uh, in the '90s oh, yeah. and uh, oh, yeah. until recently, and you were one of the first people that was able to take it into a fine art space and to be able to to turn it into fine art. And by that, I mean um, monetize it in a way you were able to have the freedom to do your own work with it. Um, I always felt to a large extent con- confined by uh, the the jobs that would come my way. Right. You know, especially right. in the late '80s and the '90s as an artist you were dependent on somebody liking your work and having a product to put it on the as you well know the fine art scene wasn't as accepting of, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> so not only have have you paved the way for that but uh, i also consider you i often tune in to what you're doing and what's going on with you because as an entrepreneur and as you know these days it's not enough just to be a creative and an artist, but you have to be a, business, a smart business person to, to make a living at art because it's very difficult, especially in fine art, where you're trying to find a space to do your own work. And uh, my wife, Laurie, and I often uh, joke that Chet's the hardest working artist in the business. <laughs> seems like, you know, you're, you're finding every avenue, whether it's conventions, whether it's social media, whether it's putting on big shows at Copro gallery, and then somehow you're squeezing in a podcast, um, <laughs> kids and dogs, yeah. um, I have no idea how you do it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's only because I have to, it's just because it's that hard that's, to do, you know, that's
1: it. You have to, and what a motivation having to is, um, right. I mean, that's a, a wonderful conversation in itself, um. Up until now, I've always described it as as running full blast. My art has always been running. I just feel like I have to pursue every avenue, every revenue of of finance. Um, Just recently, as in the last couple of years, um, I'm in my mid 50s now. So the house has finally paid off. The kids are out of college. The the overhead has finally shrunk enough that Lori and I can breathe, where, you know, it's not like trying to do 20 paintings a year and, and go to conventions and do all these things. And what I'm leading up to, the funny thing is, is my whole life, I wanted this space, this space of freedom where, okay, I can just breathe and I can not only do what I want, but I can take my time and do it. And and, and now I find it's almost like I'm not as motivated. I mean, part of it is because I've worked so hard for so long, I find myself going, you know, maybe there's more out there than just art. You know, I I know that's blasphemy, Mm -hmm. but... um, I I find it a little harder to to spend those seven days a week in the mm-hmm. you know, which of course isn't a bad thing. It no. is good to find balance in life. But anyway, I'm going down many t- tangents here. But my original point <laughs> is is you know making ends meet is a wonderful motivator, and um, and it, it does it motivates you to get in there and and put your best into it.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be. I definitely wouldn't be as prolific if I didn't have to be I just know I wouldn't even though I still would be creating probably but I'm in that same place too my house isn't paid off but uh my kids are grown up and there's just that that space and freedom to where I can I don't have to work quite as hard and that may not be apparent because I am I am still kind of having to um you know kind of bust my ass a bit but um but it but it has calmed down and I am noticing the same thing like I want to, you know, I I enjoy like sitting and watching movies again when they're not on. You know, I used to watch; I still kind of do it. Watch TV, watch uh, movies while I'm painting. I have it right next to my easel, just to kind of tune my tune my brain out. And uh, but now it's like, oh, I like to sit down and watch the movie and (laughs) and play my bass and play my guitar and just like I I I understand the idea of hobbies now, which I never quite got before. You know. So. You
1: know, the the challenge there is is I am trying to find a little more balance in my life um, as artists, You know, we feel like we're never going to get to say all the things we're going to that we need to say. But you also realize that that will never end. Um, meaning, if I do a thousand more paintings, I still have a thousand more paintings to do. Right. So right. I, I I realize that, and I'm trying to step back and and I'm trying to find the hobbies. The funny thing is, as creatives, it's so hard to find a hobby that is not creative <laughs> know, um, so music i get because it's very different and, the, and it's part of the reason i started writing many years ago because i needed something that was creative that was completely different than art mm. but what i'm leading up to is i i try to find something that's just fun you know nice, uh, right. and what is that for me um you know uh i we've we have mountains full of snow so i try to go skiing sometimes i actually go snow biking which is a conversation itself it's a bike with two skis on it it's uh, <laughs> it's it's easy for older people with bad knees but um um yeah so part of my challenge is trying to find non-creative fun things to do mm-hmm. have what do you do that's not creative that's fun is there uh
0: probably reading um, i think reading, reading yeah. is the big thing that i i haven't been able to do since i really started this career that i used to love i was just a huge reader um but I, I, I'm I, not at a point where I can do that yet, really. I mean, once in a while, I'll take some time, you know, a day off maybe yeah. and read something. But I, I'm not quite – I'm not where you're at, you know, to where I have that option yet. I still have to kind of to hustle a little bit. But I'm getting there. Getting <laughs> there.
1: Yeah, and I don't mean to imply that I'm not. I call it almost see me retired. I mean, right. what's funny for me see my retired is working five days a week instead of seven. <laughs> exactly, and then I feel guilty for taking the two days off, right. which is hilarious. It's just my body and mind has been been trained to do that. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned reading, and you know I just loved books as a kid. I just devoured books. Yeah. And, um, you know, even into my early 20s, I remember, you know, taking a day and getting up and just burying yourself in a book. and magic. So, ah, so much fun. So much so much fun. And I have not done that in years. I mean, part of it is just the eye strain if I'm either yeah. writing or painting all day to do that. But I am fortunate in that I listen to tons of books on tape okay. while that's one of my favorite things to do while I paint. So. Yeah, yeah.
0: I find that all these media sources are competing for me, though. Cause there's well, like, just, there's, there's like, there's just right. every movie you want streaming. Yes. There's every audio book you want that you can, you know, get, get a, a, a audible subscription and listen to that. And there's podcasts and it's, it's like, I've noticed maybe in the last six months that it's like, there's so much, um, cause cause when I paint, I like to zone out and just kind of mm-hmm. have something else going on. And it's like, it's hard to choose. There's like too many choices now, you know?
1: But you know, and that's an interesting subject you bring up because not to, not to sound like you know the the old folks reminiscing about old times, but there everything's trade offs. You know, there's nice. so wonderful to have all these options. Um, you know, at night, uh, Lori Knight's favorite thing is seven o'clock. Uh, we have this giant TV in our bedroom. <laughs> You just have, uh, you know, so many television shows and YouTube. It's right. just endless entertainment. And it's a really nice place to be. It's our little, you know, our, our little, what's the word for it? Our comfort place yeah, to be. Sanctuary. But uh, what I was leading up to is, you know, there there was something, you know, mm-hmm. really nice, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s when – you know you had to wait for movies to come out you didn't even have on vhs right. and you know they're wonderful you had to track things down yeah there was there was such a small world of that that you know at that time i could tell you i could almost list every horror movie right. every good horror mm. book you know the best fantasy books um you know the best bands mm-hmm. it was a smaller mm-hmm. world but it was also harder to find stuff like that i mean you know like the band the cramps one of my favorite bands mm-hmm. of all time
2: um
1: it, uh, you know, you would just go to the record stores to find any fanzine or anything. Just right. a little bit of a picture of them you haven't <laughs> seen yet. You would get their albums, you would devour the inside and everything. Now, you just go to whoever's Facebook page and and it's there's no mystery. Yeah. It's all <clears throat> there and it's also accessible. Right. right. It, in some ways, makes it less special. I
0: you know, know, I know. It's it It's the trade-off. It's like, it's, it's like, actually, we're gaining. It's like. It's almost like we're... Uh, we're gaining quantity and we're losing i don't know if quality is the right word but the specialness like you know what i mean
1: absolutely and um and and it does feel like you have to wade through a lot of garbage to get yeah, to right. stuff as well um, yeah. but you know it's it's
0: but there's benefits to having all all that media too. So it's kind of like it really seems to kind of balance out in a way. It does. You know, I mean, I wouldn't go
1: back. I wouldn't right. trade <laughs> it. Right? I'm a, I'm addicted at this point. Oh, is what yeah. I'm say.
0: <laughs> exactly. And the dog the dog agrees.
1: The dog <laughs> agrees.
0: <laughs> so, um, you started really young working professionally.
1: Turning off the
0: doorbell.
1: One second. Okay.
0: <laughs> Brom is running outside of his door and doing something and (laughs) all right he's coming back here he is
1: Any apologies, everybody. Killed, no problem. A chihuahua to deal with there.
0: No problem. Um, you fit you right know, in.
1: Uh, our friend got a Chihuahua, and it's just the sweetest little mm. thing. And uh, we thought, oh, I'd love to have a cute little Chihuahua <laughs> that sits in my lap and cuddly. And we got a Chihuahua, and I love it to death. But um, we, we, I think we got that the high maintenance version.
0: <laughs> Is it young? Is it still young? Or? It is, it's nine months old. Okay, it'll it'll mellow out. Chihuahuas are great. I used to we used to always get Chihuahuas for all throughout the '90s. We got Chihuahuas, and uh, they're really great dogs. I love them.
1: Well, the, our funny thing, our solution to our our high energy Chihuahuas, we've just bought another one, but we're picking up <laughs> weeks.
0: So oh, excellent!
1: Either it was a smart move, or uh, we're going to regret this. No, we'll see.
0: It's good that they have little playmates for sure. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So I was asking you, uh, you started really young working professionally, right? Cause I mean, cause I, I, I looked at that, that book, I was like, probably, let me see, I must've been in my twenties and I'm only a couple years younger than you. I think I'm 51. So you must've been really young when your first book came out, right?
1: Uh, I was. Um, so I'm, I think I'm turning 53 this year. So just a couple years older than you. Right. Um, I, I was fortunate enough when I got out of art school, I was 20 years old and that's when I started in commercial art Hmm. and that was, uh, in Atlanta and it was a lot of product rendering and, uh, California raisins were big. So everybody wanted their product with little cute arms and legs. Um, it was horrible. I got so sick of, you know, uh, people's products, um, and, you know, that, of course, when you get out of school, at first, it's just, you know, so exciting to actually being paid, making right. money to do art. I mean, that was just beyond my comprehension almost. Um, and then at 24 was when I landed my gig at TSR. And almost overnight, I went from doing, uh, I mean, fantasy and is what I did my whole life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was a, a hiatus for about four years while I was just trying to make money at art, which was the commercial art. Um, and then I was trying to break into the, the the industry, and to to be frank, my portfolio just really wasn't up to snuff. Um, but when I finally got my big before, you know, the, essentially I went from doing almost full time product work to doing oh my god, fantasy, you right. know. So that was amazing. I was there for four years. Um, Only then-
0: four years? You did? <laughs> you must have done a lot of work in four years,
1: man. Yeah, TSR. I was there for four years, and um, when I got out, it was the collectible card market uh, phase was going on. And f- interesting about that is um, card art. That was my really my first experience with just um, closest thing to fine art for me because people were like, "Look, we just need you know dozens of cards and these sets, and there was a lot of freedom. You know, with covers and stuff, you had to sell the product, so." there was a lot of committee involvement often in covers and things had to, to be um, very powerful and eye catching. Mm -hmm. When I got my first assignment to do card sets, it was really, you know, we need 40 paintings, anything you want. And it was just all the stuff in my sketchbook and things just started coming out of me. But the other part of it was those cards, you know, you, I was doing them small, you know, they were eight to 10 inches Hall, and my eyes were really good back then and so I was turning around paintings and you know two to three days sometimes um, 20 um, um. um so what happened was after the four years of TSR and then another maybe three years of doing cards and all that work and plus that was back when I could work day and night right. um, and I created just a huge body of work and so that first book um dark dark works my first art book you know, that's why there was so much so quick, I okay. guess. Okay. Um, and I also feel about that time, I, you know, as artists, we take all our influences and they go into us and something hopefully unique comes out. We combine all those influences. And and for me, it was fantasy, it was horror, mm-hmm. it was, it was mm-hmm. punk rock. And, um, you know, there, there were other people doing similar things, but... Um, I was one of the first people to put that g- together in a way that was in mainstream mm-hmm. fantasy. So it was a sort of a unique look. Um, Definitely. And, Definitely. and and I think that's part of when that voice, uh, I was able to do all that work so quickly and get it all out there. It's so much that it mm-hmm. really sort of branded it to some degree. Um, again, even though I was bringing in lots of influences from uh, other areas.
0: Right. Did, did that just kind of happen naturally because you had to crank stuff out or because that's a that's a question I get from a lot of younger artists that come to me for advice they're trying to find their voice and trying to do their you know make their own unique get their own unique style and I wonder if just because you were forced into it so fast that it just happened on its own kind of like just by going with your gut or what
1: you know I I feel like how's the answer I just feel like that was who I was that was the work that I needed to do another maybe a good way to put it is um when I was working at TSR and my commercial ears, and then TSR and even though I was doing the fantasy and a certain bit of that was getting into that work my sketchbooks on the side was all full of the more punk fetish sort of things because it didn't quite fit the TSR brand um so it was just really that combination of the things I love and that was my first opportunity to to get it out there um so I never felt like it was conscious. It, you know, it was so nice when I was younger because it was not conscious. It was just, this is the way I see the world. You know, here's a good way to put it. When you look at bands and uh, most bands, punk rock bands and stuff, most musicians, they do their most powerful work in their 20s. Right. And you know, right. they become better musicians later. They're more sophisticated and everything they have a unique voice. It's a combination of everything that's gone in their head and it comes out and it's truly a unique voice and they get it out there. And then later, even though they become better artists, they become more, maybe more self-conscious. They maybe become more educated, more sophisticated, but there's something about that naivety of, you know, you know, early clash albums, early right. uh, uh, you name it, in a cave or whatever that they can never duplicate it. So, Possibly there's a uh, part of my theories is I think young people in their 20s are bringing a fresh voice to the world because they're they're looking at things in a way that nobody has before and they're putting it out there. So for me, I felt like it was a bit of that. Here's this. It it almost felt like the world was missing this this Mm -hmm. out there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And now, you know, I struggle with. A couple of things I struggle with. Number one, not replicate, not repl- reproduce, replicating myself. Right. I feel like okay. um, I've created my own mm-hmm. tropes. Like this is my brand, and it sometimes feel like oh these nu- I can hit these numbers. I can hit them well, but sometimes I feel like ugh, I, I don't want to. It's almost like an imitation of myself. Right. And, and sometimes I need to let go of that. It's okay, you know. I don't okay. have to, to reinvent the wheel each time because that can become its own own painful struggle mm-hmm. but i think the point i'm trying to make is now it feels like a very conscious process it feels like i, I kind of go where i naturally want to go and i go no no i need to i need to move right. I need to do something. and then the struggle that happens there is with instagram with with a with a thousand hundred thousand artists putting all this work out there and so much good work and right. so much you know, wonderfully imaginative work, and so many thousands of combinations of of all these elements you love and stuff. It's hard to find ground that isn't well trodden.
0: Right.
2: Uh,
1: okay. So uh, again, I'm going off on a couple of different. Tips. <laughs> I know, <laughs> uh, I know
0: exactly what you're saying. I, I'm, I'm, I'm there myself. It's like I've, got, I, I look back in at 2005, back when I didn't know what I was doing really, when I was just kind of teaching myself how to paint. And some of my best work is from back then. And it's still kind of like my my style was developed then, and when I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It's really weird, you know? but yeah. I, but I feel um I just feel like, you know, I've kind of committed to this monster path. And, yeah. and um I just I can't imagine ever, you know, getting tired of it. I just feel like there's always going to be, somewhere new to take it even though i'm not always doing i'm not always taking it in a new way because a lot of what i'm doing now um you know i guess maybe i don't know if i'd be i started painting when i was like 33 so i'm kind of like mid career i guess you could say in a way if i live long enough (laughs) but um (laughs) uh I, I a lot of times I'm painting now. It's like I'm still. Oh, I want to try this technique, and it's not so much about what I'm painting, but it's about you know I want to try this new technique, or I want to really nail this light thing, or you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's where I feel a lot of my focus is now. Is is um, I mean, I, I'm I love the macabre. I will always love the macabre, and and, and uh, it's hard for me to even consider painting <laughs> anything along those lines. But it is how what is macabre and, and how do I want to right. uh, illustrate that in different ways that maybe aren't quite so literal. I tend to be very literal and it's like how do you be creepy without being right. so creepy? But the point you just made is I find so much of my focus now is on just trying to paint in a slightly different way. Um maybe not even necessarily better, but just you know here's a new way of kind of trying to put right. the
0: paint down that,
1: that fills um it seems like that's where the, the challenge is for me. And, you know, I'll walk through museums and I see all that lost craft, right. all that people used to paint that nobody seems to be able to emulate today, no matter how hard they try. What's lost? What have we lost? Right. Um, thanks to the 60s and, and you know, all the <laughs> fine art. I'm not the fine art, but the, the uh, I, yeah. I can't remember. The, the know,
2: crappy art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry. The
1: crappy <laughs> art out there where they taught people how to unpaint. Right, right. And and I'm like, how can I how can I bring a little bit of that into the things I love, the macabre and, and so forth? Um,
0: yeah, yeah, I, that yeah. That, I mean, all all that stuff. Every every everyone who can really paint, illustrators and people that know how to paint. You know, everyone always. I think we all kind of secretly look with uh, disdain at that kind of you know pop art and um, uh, 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 abstract expressionist and stuff but that was an important thing for its time you know it was kind of like necessary to move things forward and and in the same way i think that the stuff that we are doing not not to sound too self-important but i think that what we are doing is a necessary extension or necessary kind of rebellion against the current like blue chip art scene because everybody yeah. you know the 99.9 percent of the public will see that stuff and call bullshit on it And, right. and oh sure and they, it's like they kind of know it's like it's not artwork that you that f- makes you feel anything which is yeah. i think what we're trying to do is artwork that kind of makes you feel and, and people are yeah, always going to be attracted to that i think
1: yeah a lot of the modern stuff it's all it's all about hype and investment mm. and uh, and I absolutely love all, uh, all the pop stuff that mm-hmm. happened in the 60s, um, and I don't mean to to sound like a, uh, uh, in disparaging it. My frustration is for somehow in all the, the colleges, um, all the art schools at that time felt a need to destroy uh, the actual ability to illustrate. Right. So it's almost like both things could not exist, uh, which is sad, and that's mm-hmm. when so much of that craft got lost. Um, yeah it's, you know even all the way back to the dada movement that just right. totally opened up the world for all of us right um it just it's too bad things people are so tribal when things become um you know the the, the, the critics have to destroy things and other mm-hmm. you know, to justify what they are I you know. know they can't let the layman just decide for themselves that they like it because they like it there right. has to be a involved. Yeah, right.
0: yeah, yeah, and that's just you know that's that's one of the one of the many reasons I like this this dark art scene and illustration and fantasy illustration is because it's um it's kind of like art for the people I think
1: it, it's honest. You yeah, know, yeah, you're, it's real. You like know. It because you love it. Because if you were just trying to make money, this is not what yeah, we. Would yeah,
0: you wouldn't be painting <laughs> monsters and <Yeah. laughs> stuff like that. So. uh you you were, uh, well, we have a lot in common, actually, because I was going through just kind of re-researching you again and um, found that we were close to the same age. And it's so funny because a lot of the, the, the oh. <laughs> sorry. oh, sorry, go ahead. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, a lot of the, you know, just a lot of the old drawings that you did, like, I got to show you this. This is funny. No one's going to be able to see it except me and you, but. I saw this one drawing you did in '81. It's like one of your kid drawings from uh-huh. 1981, and it was like—I
1: don't know if you can see this.
0: This is 1981 for me.
1: Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Come
0: a guy, on. you know, total warrior fighting a dragon.
1: It's—we oh, would have—we would have been best friends oh, in total, high school, man. <laughs> and, and then, I, and then the,
0: the the punk thing, which I really like that you. Uh, uh were a punk fan because it's it's like you know, being in this this whole this dark art scene, the, the dominant music is definitely metal. And I was always more of a punk. I was like my thing was actually in high school, I was I was too much of a nerd to be into punk and I was into prog because I was kind of fed up with dumb rock and I was trying to find something new and I didn't understand punk yet. I thought it was just dumb. Then I got out of high school and I heard it for the you know kind of with fresh ears and it just completely it was punk rock, hardcore, From from then on out, it really just completely changed. Like I felt like I kind of came into my own um, when I discovered punk rock. So it's cool to hear that you have that background as well, because hardly anybody has the punk rock background anymore.
1: I, I I know what you're saying, and I I mean punk rock. Yeah, I was I was in um, a military brat, so I lived all over. But when I discovered punk rock, it was uh, I was in ninth grade, 1978, in. Uh, in in alabama south alabama wow
0: how do you and, how do you discover um, punk rock in alabama in 1978 that sounds impossible
1: well you know <laughs> uh, the the first stuff that came out is showtime started having those devo clips
0: oh yeah yeah Devo's same here i was i was into yeah. devo like 78 79 right before i that was before i got into punk though and yeah. you know what i mean i didn't quite make the association
1: and my reaction was, it was interesting. My initial reaction is, oh my God, these people look so retarded. <laughs> they, you know, this is the worst thing. Oh, this is the worst thing ever. And yet I couldn't turn away. Right. And then, like, that fascination grows, you know. And then I kept, and the next thing you know, I started to buy all the albums. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, my older brother, he was buying a lot of the albums and he was a big influence as well. And, um, you know, for me, it was so liberating because up to that point, it was, there was a certain pressure to conform, especially in the South. Things are very much oh, like, yeah fit in a click and I didn't ever fit in any clicks and it was punk rock gave me you know the license to say I don't care right. about what you people think <laughs> I am you know I am a crazy wacko and and I'm you know I'm I'm very happy to be that right uh, yeah
0: well that's what uh you know um I'm a big fan of uh, this band the Minutemen do you know the Minutemen of course yeah, yeah and uh, that they're from the town I grew up in San Pedro uh, Yeah, uh, Mike Watt, who's the bass player and kind of like he was kind of the leader of the band, sort of. um, He said that when he got into punk rock, it was in the late 70s. And of course, when you hear the Minutemen, they're not like anything, any punk band. They're totally their own thing. And he said it was always kind of a bummer to him because when he got into punk, punk was about doing your own thing. And, yes. and, and it was about being original and doing your own thing and it wasn't about like a formula and the more they the, you know as as the scene began to grow it became uh, you know as rigid as any kind of rock music you know what i mean it was exactly. very much you had to follow this formula and they used to get spit on the Minutemen and and just like ragged oh. on and they were doing this amazing totally unique music and and that's a it, sad it thing to lose me.
1: Band had its own voice, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was really you know, um, art, there's a lot of artist artisticness in it. You know, whether it was the whole New York scene with Talking Heads, Ramones, Blondie, um, you know, Cramps, and and just mm-hmm. all these completely unique. And it's really around 83, 84, when it started to sour for me a little bit, when the politics really started to come into play. And then it was, you know, the punk rock uniform. And and not only that, but because it grew, and once again, what humans do is they start forming tribes. You know, at first it was just the tribes of alternative uh, punk music, you know, punk new wave, all of it, (laughs) Paws Don't Know Me, you know, you name it, all this stuff was under this window of weirdo Mm -hmm. music. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as it grew, People started to form their tribes, and then, you know, the hardcore punk scene became very political, and then, you know, I was always a bit more into the the romantic side of things, you know, Nick Cave and the cramps, and I, mm-hmm. I liked dressing up in black and eye makeup and mm-hmm. being a weird <clears throat> around town, but then even the goth thing became a goth thing, and it became sort of a uniform... So you know, as somebody that went in this to be an individual, I started feeling pressure to conform to these groups, and and um, you know a lot of that I can't say it pushed me away, but some of it became distasteful because it it did become very uh, peer pressure. You right. Know?
0: Yeah. That's the the weird the weird thing. The reason one of the reasons I didn't get into punk in high school was because I had some friends who were punks, but I was just kind of like regular, like a long haired rock kid. And um, they used to give me shit, like, calling me a hippie. And so I was like, you know, you guys are, like, conservative. And this was probably around, you know, I graduated high school in 85. So this is probably around, like, 83, right around the time you're saying, actually. And all these, you know, uh, all my punk friends used to give me shit for having long hair. And it's like... You know, it made me not want to be a punk at all because it was like, you guys are being assholes. You know, you guys are like the surfers because the surfers in Pedro were the assholes. They were like the jocks that used to uh, uh, bully people. So like, you guys are just like these asshole surfers. And um, so that's that was another stumbling block for me to to get past in order to realize that it was, you know, amazing, amazing music.
1: One of the nice things about being the South is the South is culturally a you know three or four years behind, and I don't mean that negatively. It just those they didn't have ex- access to a lot of this, and again, the South was a bit conformist, um, clannish. and I don't mean Ku Klux Klanish. <laughs> I'm just, you know, the, the clans of yeah, like right. uh, Scotland and Ireland. You know, this is your, you're mm-hmm. in your. And your. Um, so I mean, I I was in '83. I graduated in high school, but I was in Alabama. You know, '81, '82. And there was literally one other person in my school that would admit that they even liked. This right.
2: Stuff, right. Stuff. So uh, yeah. I,
1: oh. I was going to say, I finally went to uh, I went to the, uh, to an art camp. It was the art Institute of Atlanta. It's the school I ended up going to, and, and I have nothing good to say about it. <laughs> other than I went to a two week uh, summer program for high school students. And at that program, this was the summer of 82. Um, my now-wife, Lori Yaki, was there. That was her maiden name then, Lori Yaki, and another artist named David We Um And they were both weirdo punkers. And they were the first weirdo punkers I'd ever met in real life other <laughs> than and my brother. And, um, you know, it was an instant bonding. And I'll, I'll give a quick story about my wife. I, I walk into this group. We're getting together. And there's this girl in a red miniskirt, this already red outfit with a Betty Boop haircut, dyed black, you know, it blew my mind. It was like, <laughs> God, you know, this girl, you know, I've never seen a girl that was brave enough to be weird in right. the South. And, um, I, of course I was too scared to talk to her, but a group of us were going for lunch and I mentioned, Hey, let's invite her. And the other girls leaned over and they go, don't invite her. She's weird. <laughs> and I was just like the little, the little hearts go started going off in my eyes. And, uh, and I went over to her and, uh, you know, not only was she like punk and she liked comics and she liked all this stuff. And it was, you know, it was instant bonding.
2: Right.
1: Um, when her parents came to pick her up at the end of the two week program, again, this was between 11th and 12th grade for me, I was about to go to Frankfurt, Germany, uh, to, to, for a part of Army Brat thing. Um, so, and she was going to New York City, I think, for school. And anyway, they showed up to pick her up, and I looked them in the eye. I said, uh, When I get back from Germany, I'm going to marry your daughter. <laughs> and they were like, like what? You know, um, and sure enough, I went to Germany for two years, and when I came back, we hooked up in Atlanta. We moved in together, and uh, she's been stuck with me ever since. Oh, that's awesome. Well,
0: th- th- this is a, a good uh, time to bring up the fact that if you're not aware out there listening in podcast land, that um, she is an amazing painter. Like I, I, I had no idea, because <laughs> I had no idea. All of a sudden, she started posting these paintings she was working on and it's like unbelievable she's like
1: well what's you know. really inter- interesting to me is uh when we met she, had, she was and had been in Parson for actually when we got back together when I got back from uh, Germany she'd been in Parsons for a year in New York City and when we got together uh, she painted far better than I did and she's much more of a sophisticated knowledgeable painter
2: mm.
1: and um we ended up for, for many reasons it was 83 84 85 there was almost nowhere for her to put her she because she liked realism because she liked figurative right, work it was right. hard to find galleries that would even put that kind of stuff in there so she ended up putting it all inside and had children and, and she's such a hyper-focused person she put 100 percent into the kids and she didn't paint again for probably 15 maybe even 18 years wow and yeah. uh, and then when the kids were graduating high school, she started painting again. And what was fascinating to me is how much growth she had as a painter without even painting. In yeah, other words, crazy. The crazy. amount of understanding of osmosis of what you're seeing. Right. Um, and she started painting. And it was so fun to watch her. Because she, as you know, when you were early days of painting, it was so exciting because every painting you did was a little bit better than the one before it, right. you know, right. these days it's like, sometimes my paintings are a little worse. Go up. You know, it's very depressing at times. time. Um, <laughs> but, but to watch her each painting be a little better than the previous one, you know, and her excitement, it was, it was almost like watching a child learn right. to paint. Um, and uh, yeah, and then she just got better and better and more sophisticated. And, and currently she's working on this, these pieces that I just, I see sometimes artists just struggle along and they kind of hit a plateau. And every once in a while, there's an artist who will just make a big jump. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Alan Williams is somebody that I would say like that. Somebody that was always a decent artist and he just hit this thing where he found his. Uh, yeah, his, yeah, he, yeah,
0: I know exactly what you're talking a handful about.
1: handful of other artists like that. And just recently, she's working on a few paintings now where where they're they're just making my jaw drop. It's like she just. Wow. You know, her voice and and she's she's going and they're much more sophisticated than what i'm doing so i'm a bit annoyed i walk in there's like oh man she's doing really cool crap um so i'm really excited for her new paintings to get out there
0: yeah i can't wait to see them because the stuff everything i've seen from her has been amazing and it's so cool it's really cool that you guys are to be in shows with you both you know at, at copro and stuff it's like oh like, yeah. i can't even believe it i can't believe that
1: it's, that's so much fun. That's part of what I love about the shows is it, it is a, you know, a chance to to share space with other artists that you yeah. love and respect. Um, and it is a lot of, it, it's really nice to have her. We have a three-car garage. we converted our studios. Oh, nice. um, and there's a wall between us. She put a soundproof door between us because she says, I, I jibber-jabber too much. <laughs> um and not even like interesting conversation, but <laughs> kind of mindless rhyming and nonsense that would just drive any sane person insane. But, um, but for the most part, when I'm not driving her crazy, uh, to to you know to share that creative space and to have somebody with a with a sophisticated eye to come in and tell right. you your painting's looking like crap is um, is always helpful. Yeah, right? and the
0: only person that's going to tell you that is a spouse. That's for damn sure.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> that honesty and it does create frustrations at times but uh, <laughs> but you know that honesty is always appreciated
0: yeah yeah i'm just i'm a, i'm a huge fan of hers too i just i really went. she it just seemed like i think i was friends with her on facebook through you maybe before she was posting paintings and then yeah. just boom she started posting these paintings and apparently that's when you know she started painting again and i just was I love them. I'm, I'm just, I'm a huge fan. I just, uh, e- even if there was no association with you and I saw that work, yeah. I would be like, oh, yeah, really, you know, inspires me to paint.
1: Her yeah, work, was her, her to, break to, paint. to avoid it. And it was tough for her uh, because I, it was so well established. Um, she wanted to have a unique voice, mm-hmm. and uh, she was first getting into it. It was I so badly wanted to put hands on her paintings. Look, look here, just did this if I can just show you. Right. But she would. She has never let me put a mark on her paintings. Much wow. to my <laughs> frustration. <mean>, I'm like, utter <laughs> thrust. Like I'm trying to, It's so hard to explain something like right. how to brushstroke. Just let me show you. No, right. no. Oh, hey. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's been so important to her that you know she has her own voice.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she, you know, uh, no offense to you, but she stands she stands on her own for sure. You know, it's uh, it's really kind of incredible. So it's 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 weird. It's weird to me that <laughs> you guys are both oh, so God. great. Usually, you know, I've there's been artist couples before that I've known, and it's and there's always always one is like better than the other one and the other one's like trying to keep up and she really, you know, holds her own, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, one day maybe she'll come on the show. Cause I would love to have her. I know she's not really into that, but if she ever wants to, she's got an open invitation. So okay. You, huh? can, you can tell her that. I will. <laughs> I was going to tell you this one story about, um, I, like I got into diva before I got into punk rock and, uh, just because it was so weird and my brother got me into them when I was like 12 years old, <clears throat> like the old stuff. And, yeah. um, I just, I le- I saw, I saw them on Don Kirshner's rock concert. Do you remember that show? It was like, yeah. yeah. And they, and they played their movies, their weird little movies. And I just thought, this is so weird. I loved it. And so I remember in the seventh grade, um, I saw them actually in 70, 79, 80, like on New, oh, wow. Year, New Year's Eve, my brother took me. It was, it was amazing. And, um i i wore for i'm um, sorry there the, there was a dress is your favorite band day at school yeah. and i wore one of those yellow devo suits oh no way no no. everybody gave me shit everybody everybody nobody liked it nobody got it and i was you know just and everyone was saying devo's punk rock like it was bad and it's like uh-huh just, sure just you know people don't realize back then in the in the um you know, late seventies, especially in the early eighties, you'd get shit for being a punk. You get beat up for being a punk, just for yeah, having a mohawk. You know, people take that stuff for granted or blue hair or whatever. Yeah, you know, it so. was
1: it was not cool then, especially in the a, South.
0: A, I imagine it must have yeah. been really hard.
1: It was very threatening. You know, it was you were a weirdo, and it was threatening. And um, Laurie and I would be at the bus stop. You know, decked out the way we were, and people would go by and throw things and All spit. Right. All, you know and, and, uh, that's and of not, course i loved it that's
0: not even to mention the cops either because the police would yeah. hassle uh um, punks all the time like they were like this new gang yeah know?
1: yeah well it, it threatened you know an established way of life it was you know why would anybody be such a freak on purpose right.
0: you know? <laughs> right. yeah so okay one thing i wanted to talk to you about is um your love of the macabre and horror and how, where, where do you think that came from? Cause I know I was reading in your book, you felt like it was just kind of like, it's like who you are, like almost like genetic or something. Yeah. I mean, Cause I kind of feel that way too, but I can also, um, I can trace mine back to definitely like um, family trauma, like tr- childhood trauma. Oh. I can trace it back to that, but I always say it feels genetic. It just feels yeah. like it's always been there.
1: Now, at what age did you have the trauma that you like, feel triggered? By?
0: Well, like probably five years old.
1: Now, before five years old, were you drawn to that kind of stuff? Uh, did, you, did you like skulls and bones? And
0: I used to like, you know, before I got it, I would always like kind of weird stuff. But I think it got, I got more into horror when I, when I, when things got you know, scary in my family situation. Yeah. And and I started watching horror movies, and I think I kind of made this connection with, oh, I feel that way when I'm, yeah. you know, when my brother and sister are beating the shit out of each other, you know what I mean? So so I'm wondering if that's part of it, but it's just weird because, you know, on my mom's side of the family, they all have a really kind of a weird sense of humor, and they're all into, like, practical uh-huh. jokes, and you know, my gr- that's the other thing, though. My, my grandfather used to put this Cave, you remember that caveman mask that was popular in the like uh-huh, I late do. '60s? It's that really weird. Right. Um, this is from Topstone was the was the manufacturer because I, I know I know these things. I'm a mask geek, but um, <laughs> he used to put that on and chase us around the house. I've told this story many times. Like turn the lights off and chase yeah, us around wow. the house when he was babysitting us, and it was yeah. like you know. It's terrifying and kind of kind of fun at the same time, but you know i've got now i got uh granddaughters i got uh uh-huh. uh seven and eight year old granddaughters and I think of doing that to them, and that would definitely fuck the, fuck their world up it would like <laughs> alter them psychologically for sure so i just i you know i i can kind of trace it back to that but i but i um you know i always felt like i was into i was interested in unusual things i guess even before that
1: well, it's fascinating to hear you say that because it is a question I, I need to ask more people because it, it is I'm curious to my own origins. You know, where did this come from? Right. Um, but for for me, just is just the earliest earliest memories. You know, any sort of bones or skulls, mm-hmm. I just gravitate to them. I mean, two three years three years old. You know, right. um, part of it it could be. You know, I moved to Japan when I was uh, my family went to Japan. My dad was in the Air Force at the time. And there was, you know, a barrage of Japanese animation that didn't exist in the United States then. It was, you know, Ultraman and Kikaida right. and uh, Great Raiden and, and all the Godzilla stuff. And the stores were just full of the rubber monsters, of uh, you know, the, all those Japanese little toys mm-hmm. that they had at the time. Um, and I even have vivid memories of my dad picking me up to the shelf and letting me pick out one of these monsters. And it just, to this day... I have this thing where I want to go back and grab all of those monsters because they cool. So I couldn't even decide. Um, so for me, it was just always there. It was always the macabre. As soon as I could draw the very, I still have some of these early, early drawings, and they're all monsters right. and dragons, right. and vampires. Um, so I cannot pinpoint any rhyme or reason other than you know that was air and water for me. Right. Uh, anything I ever did creatively. Uh, you know, my first model kits were the Aurora model kits. Oh yeah, like me too. Airplanes mm-hmm. and all this stuff is like, oh no, I want. To go <laughs> I know. I was the only. And, uh, <laughs> I was the
0: only one. I was the only one who did the Aurora monster kits, and all my other friends wanted to do airplanes and
1: and and they had those really uh, uh, misogynistic, sadistic, you know, right. like guillotines that cut women <laughs> in half and all this stuff. And there were all those magazines. You know, the seventies were were awesome and terrible at the same time. But that's part of why oh, yeah. they were awesome. <laughs> Any, anything went. There was just no rules. And there were all these um, really B, C, D grade horror mags, you know, yep. which, and, and I can't even think the names off the top of my head. But
0: Those Famous Monsters were, and Famous Monsters yeah, of Homeland. That's, and,
1: that's the A-level stuff. Yeah, I'm right, sure. right. <laughs> yeah, all the stuff that was just nothing but dismemberment and, and women vampires. Right, and right she's just these really uh, sadistic things. Um, and again, here's where my brother came into play. He was three years older than me. So, you know, here I am six years old. Well, he's nine years old. And it's the seventies, you know, no, there's no rules. He goes in and buys all this stuff and bring it home. <laughs> and six-year-old me is just devouring this, like it's candy. Um, and my parents didn't seem to mind at all. They never felt any of it. They just really, and, and I keep blaming the seventies here, but in the '70s. Parents just sent their kids outside and said, oh, dark, right? Yeah, but I was
0: just talking to that with my sister the other day. It's like I could pretty much do whatever I wanted when I was a kid. It was like, like you're just off and driving, riding your bike miles away and without telling your parents and coming home before it's dark, you know. It's like anything could happen.
1: Um. Yeah. So all that stuff, you know, I was soaking in all that stuff. But what's also interesting about it is how – Absolutely normal it was for me and even to this day um, I parallel with my kids somehow in other words, my world has always been that my friends have always been people that have been into that when I was working at like TSR all my professional friends and all the people there were all into this so my children grew up thinking that all adults you know had rooms full of monster toys right. and <laughs> collected <clicking laughs> swords <laughs> and skulls you know like that was the normal world and and sometimes it's shocking to me, when i run into people you know that that aren't not only aren't aware of the stuff so to speak but genuinely find it either offensive or are so strange that they can't get their head around it one right. um, we just had to have our furnace replaced and some of the guys came into our house to replace the furnace and they're looking at all the paintings and we i have a whole mass collection on one wall and stuff and oh, nice. okay. and just watching them try to get their head around you know why uh, two adults would decorate their house? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you take it for granted because, you know, for us, it's completely normal. Like, you know, uh, we don't – I mean, I'm sure you're the same way. We don't even think about it. We just like something, and it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's weird for the, most of the population, you know. Yeah,
1: do. and and I, and I explain, you know, my collections, I surround myself with things that, that bring me joy, right. and I, the, I collect those – plastic Halloween masks from when I was a kid, the ones that would oh, like yeah. his face and get all sweaty and stuff with a little rubber band that yeah. always would break. And, um, I have a whole wall full of those. And to me, I see those and it reminds me of being a kid. Mm. Um, and I, and I never stop to think, Oh, what does somebody else think when they see that? And again, right. most of my friends, they're just into it and they love it. Um, and I've gone off on of many tangents here, but the original question that we were talking about is what makes us drawn to this stuff? And I'm fascinated that with you, it was possibly some trauma. I would, you know, maybe I should post this on Facebook and find why other people have gone down this path. Uh, uh,
0: it, that's, I mean, that is one of the big things uh, about, that I'm trying to find out uh, that I wish some, like a psych, like a real psychologist would study this because there's, there's there's so many common threads with um, people who like this kind of work and these kind of things and monsters. And the other thing that that I found, and I always talk about it on the podcast is that most of the people, like a huge majority of the people into this stuff are really kind hearted people. Yeah. More kind hearted than your average person. They're like, you know, a lot of real animal lovers usually and don't like to hurt people and, you know, shy. And it's, it's like, what what does all this mean? It means something. I don't know what it means.
1: And then you also have to question the other side of that, the, the people that, you know, seem to only be able to to like things that are, um, I don't even know the word for it, positive and pleasant, you know, that right. everything has to be a, a virtuous world that's, um, you know, that, that their house has to be, you know, very much an Ethan Allen nice presentation and that makes them comfortable. Right. Uh, right. And I'm not judging, you know, that's fine if that makes them happy, but why is that make them happy? You know, yeah, right?
0: <laughs> and then, um, and so. then, you know, I have to add the, you know, the the people that have the a lot, you know, it's 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 a it's an it's kind of an archetype of the 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 people that have the um real kind of mainstream tastes about these things and and present a really positive image, but are actually under the surface. There's all kinds of shit going on, and they're miserable. <laughs> so it's it's yeah. kind of you know there, there may be. An element of, um, I don't know, us us coming to peace with things that most people um, uh, would kind of like push away. You know, well, like I, making I, friends with that part of yourself, that fear. Sure.
1: Part of it, too, is just I, I, I often when we have neighborhood get-togethers have a difficult time communicating with other I don't want to use the word normal, <laughs> I don't want to, to stigmatize right. that normal, how bad, but average Joe, I always have difficulty having conversations with them. And what what I've come to pinpoint is so many people lack passions in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the, we're very fortunate as not only as artists, but people that have a passion, passion being the macabre, um, you know, uh, that is something that makes us excited. We're interested in the things. We love collecting. We love finding out about them. Um, there is a large percentage of people that are a little bit lost. They don't have these passions. So when I try to engage in conversations, you know, there's certain common language among a lot of men, and it's like let's talk sports. Let's talk, right. you know, right. lawn care. Um, and again, I'm not <laughs> anyway putting that down. And I and I completely. It's almost like talking about the weather. It is common ground for a lot of people, right. but anything about sports so I lack that common ground but it comes back to the point that I try to find these people's that sort of person's passion it's like well what do you what do you do for fun what do you collect and it's just you know often collect they don't and I think it partly is is they they lack something a passion about something and possibly that is also might be what is lost into life and so a lot of that sort of person is, you know, well, I make money, I'm going to buy a really nice car, I'm going to build a nice house, and I'm not in any way putting that down. Anything that makes people happy, I support 100%. Right. But is that right. a passion or is that more a goal? Like my whole life, I've wanted a Mercedes. I got my Mercedes, Right. you know, right. then what? I don't right. really want it, I just, I have it. Um, as opposed to somebody that might collect old cars because they just love old cars, right. and um, it's their passion. Mm-hmm. Um Wait, that's just a theory I have. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I I
0: find that um, you know, I, of course I'm the I'm the weirdo of the neighborhood, um, and but my neighbors are super cool and they're but they, none of them are really into this stuff. But I find that the people that are cool on the inside, so to speak. They uh, they accept that about me, like they don't judge me on it, and and so I don't judge them on not being that way. I know exactly. a lot of people in this or not. I, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but I have seen in this scene that um, uh, people have a chip on their shoulder and calling yeah. calling out normal people like they're bad. Yes. And it's like you know, it's not true. It's just another. They have their own thing, maybe, and exactly.
1: And that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. To me, it's it's whatever makes people happy right. you know if you make a lot of money and you spend on something that makes you happy that's that's awesome you go for it but just just be honest with yourself make sure you know that is right. y- y- your the goal isn't just the money and buying the thing it's something that you love yeah um, it's
0: the joy and the passion and
1: <clears throat> but there is there is again as as human beings we tend to form tribes and yeah. we tend to, to, to try to make ourselves feel better by putting down other tribes and, and that has to do with so much of the divisiveness going on now and what social right. media has brought out because it's allowed all these little tribes to form big tribes and attack all the other tribes. Um, and it's part of the poison, you know, oh, it's, Facebook it's, and, uh, and other social media. And, um, yeah, it's such
0: a bummer, man. I, I've so, I was so hopeful, you know, when, with my spaces when I got on social media and I, yeah. and it was a way for me to promote my artwork, you know, it was how I started my career and to see what it's turned into is so depressing that i i I don't even go i don't go on like i used to you know and and when i I, when i do i don't post because it's like you know you don't want to say anything i posted this thing about uh, germo del toro uh wrote an article about being remaining optimistic you know and then some guy and then some some guy just had to post i'll be optimistic when i'm a millionaire you know (laughs) someone's always
1: person (laughs) what what my theory is is you know uh, it, what's frustrating to me is, it, it, I always got this from from the the right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I I got censorship and I got people judging me and telling me what I can and can't do. Um, and now I feel like it's coming from both I sides. Am, I know, I right. know, it's a bummer. And, and you know, there's there's a term, you know, social justice warrior, which I'm fine with, but I feel like it's social justice zealotry. It's this this need to to attack. Um, to, to attack anybody that's, it's almost like people are looking so hard. They're dissecting every word and phrase to find something that they can accuse mm-hmm. you of mm-hmm. so that they can look virtuous or whatever. And sadly, I feel, I, you know, I always consider myself a progressive, but I feel a lot of this censorship or this zealotry is coming from, you know, the, the, I know. the oh. now. which makes me sad because. I feel like you know, I feel like I, that's liberal, you know that's yeah, my,
0: right that's my team, <laughs> my,
1: team why is my team attacking me right?
0: exactly, yeah, yeah, it's it's like uh it's 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 the um it's really the ego, I think it's comes down to the ego. it's like it doesn't really matter what side you're on, but if you're operating from this place of you know this illu- not to get all uh woo woo and you know spiritual here or whatever but when you're operating from a place of ego which is your sense the sense of yourself is based on uh your job the way you look who you think you are um that's that's when things can be dangerous really because i think on a deep level everyone is the same everyone's connected to this big whatever this is, we're living in, we're all part of this one amazing experience. And I think that um, either side is, is um, vulnerable to, yeah. to that kind of danger, you know?
1: And what people aren't seeing is what it all comes down to is everybody has a unique morality mm-hmm. and they, they get that confused. Like they're, they can only see their, their politics and their point of view from their own morality and they can't see that other people have a different morality. In other words, both all sets of people are are for the most part coming from a good place. they just have different moralities. Right, right. Um, and, and what is what's interesting about all this, this leads up to because one of the things you said is you feel like you're almost having to censor yourself. You before you post anything, you know, you you have to analyze it. It's like who's going to find a fence in this? Who is going right. to you know right. I, I can't just casually write or post anything anymore without going is this gonna be misinterpreted? Right. Is my mm-hmm. intent. Now, here's what's interesting about that. We were talking about being conscious and, and unconscious, it's subconscious, <laughs> unconscious about painting, subconscious <laughs> and conscious about what you paint. And I uh, used to for us part of being making emotional paintings are, are, are listening eliciting uh, emotional response or a painting is combining things in weird and unusual ways, putting things together that make people uncomfortable um, and, and used to, it was just whatever weird thing I could put together. Um, lately I've had a couple, the last two years to just kind of do some paintings of my own where I wanted to kind of push those boundaries. And I find myself so self-conscious meaning, Oh, I could put this weird thing this way. Or I could put a, a woman's body in it this way and this creature in this. And then I find myself going, wait, somebody is going to think that this is misogynistic right. or going to this, or, you know, it's cultural appropriation. I don't know. Right. I find right. myself, unfortunately, second guessing. Um, and I've always, you know, being again, being a, a punk from the punk rock generation, the seventies, it was always about, if somebody told me I can't do something with all the more reason to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and to be offensive just for the sake of being offensive, but in this world, it's 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 not even it's like I know that there's such a personal attack. If, in other words, you're not allowed to make a mistake. Right. If I do okay. that, it's weird and strange. But it becomes misinterpreted, or the intent becomes misinterpreted. You know, there are some severe consequences. Is they from mob, you know, right. mob mentality yeah. uh, type thing. So um, my point uh, being is, I find myself approaching art more self-consciously
0: yeah that's not good (laughs) i mean as far in general as far as to the to the principle of creating art it's i know what you mean um i i think because of what i paint where it's you know for whatever reason i'm mostly painting male monsters (laughs) i'm pretty safe (laughs) except one time i did do i uh i had this this it was actually kind of weird i had this i I was tripping on mushrooms i had this vision of (laughs) of, uh um i always trip responsibly but uh of i had this vision and this is before the whole alt-right nazi thing started happening this was years ago and it was a guy i just it just flashed in my mind it was like this kind of dude with a crew cut just a head and shoulders and he had a, a swastika on his face, no face, just a, a bloody carved in swastika. And then like an asshole for a mouth. And it was, and it, and it just flashed and it said Nazi face. And I was like, Oh, it's perfect. I got to paint that. Right. It's a ma- amazing idea. I thought. And so I painted it and um, actually it wasn't, I have to repaint it because I was not happy with the painting, but um, I shared it. It didn't, you know, didn't make waves because this was before the whole yeah, yeah politi- politicization got so bad on social media, but then I posted it kind of during that because t- when things got heated, because I was thinking, wow, this is kind of current now, or, or it's it it's it's found its time right now,
1: yeah. and
0: I actually got a couple people giving me a hard time, like I was promoting Nazism, sure. and it's like, no, no, I mean, clearly, clearly, this is anti-Nazi. It, to sure. me, it's just so obvious. A butthole mouth and a bloody, ugly right. swastika carved in the face and no face. It's ugly. It's monstrous. But, you know.
1: <laughs> well, it comes back to, like you mentioned, the ego. Uh, these people, if they get to call you out on something, it makes them look virtuous. You know, that's right. their ego. Like, I'm going to be the one to call them out. So, therefore, they are looking to try to twist and turn things and misinterpret things. They're they're not giving you the benefit of doubt. Right. They're doing the opposite. And that's, you know, that's very frustrating. And it's also... You know, again talking about being self-conscious, uh, this new thing where people are going back in time and finding things that are uh, offensive, and it's um, you know that's that's just very challenging because uh, social taboos change. Right. Things right. socially taboo at one time are different in a different time. And um, I did a painting probably in 1988, 88, 89, and it was uh, for uh, Ghost for White Wolf. It was set in Atlanta. So it had a it was a Confederate soldier ghost with a torn-up Confederate behind right, 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 right. Um at that time, uh the Confederate flag was not again the the hot topic it is now. It wasn't the same, you know, Dukes of Hazard mm-hmm. used to have a car. I'm not saying wrong or right or anything. I'm just saying at that time it was not a social taboo
2: right. Um
1: right. and now it is. So things get judged out of time and context. And right. you know, I just I'm, uh, how do you, I don't even know how you deal with that. All I can think of is that there are a lot of things going on right now that people are doing that 30 years from now, right. people Fine. find, right. and you just, if it's socially acceptable, you know, it is what it is. And and, and even to clarify that, that was not a glorification right, of the Confederacy. Right. Obviously. Just a ghost who exactly. had a tattered flag. Uh, but as with you, I had one or two people say things
0: about it. And it's like, well, no, it's, He's, he's just the Confederate ghost right right
1: exactly it was an illustration assignment you know right
0: yeah yeah I think that um you know people like us and most people really find themselves kind of caught in the middle I mean I know that especially people that are you know I've always I always my whole family's been liberal and I've always been liberal and um and I feel like caught in the middle because I see people on the left that are that are you um, Really, maybe judging people too harshly, uh-huh. and y- you know it's it puts you in a weird spot because you don't want to. Cr- it's I- I'll admit it, you don't want to criticize your own side, yeah. especially when you see how scary the other side is nowadays. Seriously, because the yeah. the alt right and this whole Nazi thing, and the fascism is super scary. So it's like you see people on the left, like that's not cool, but you know you you feel stuck. You know it's weird.
1: I mean, yeah, I, I've always just wanted nothing to do with politics, so I don't want anything <laughs> to do with any of it. Um, it only, I think, where it really affects me is when I, I feel like it's affecting my ability to ex- self express. Right. Um, and again, going back as a child of the 70s, you know, it was a time of such, pre- of such freedom of self expression, and mm-hmm. I feel. To me, those are my values, and they're so important. So I feel anything that that censors people, um, uh, you know, I, I I feel it it threatens our ability to express ourselves and ultimately communicate. Um, but uh, I I
0: I, yeah. agree. I agree. And then on the other hand, it's like you know when I see Alex Jones get his platform taken down, I'm kind of like I kind of agree with that because mm-hmm. he is violating the terms of service by you know. Doing, you know, by by inciting violence and stuff like that. So it's like, I, I, it's there are just no clear answers nowadays. Every there's just so much information now. It's really hard to navigate the world. It's hard
1: to draw the line, right? And who is the person who draws that line? Right, right. And and everybody that draws the line is going to have moral biases, like I was saying. So as long as those moral biases. Are close to your heart, it's all good. I know. <laughs> so they start using them to censor you, then it becomes a problem. I, but I don't have the solutions. I don't even yeah. know with this conversation.
0: I agree. It's it's more like, you know, if, if there's one thing to take away from it, I think is that the whole, I think that the, the whole, <clears throat> um, you know, the veil is being lifted from this illusion of reality. I know this sounds weird, but it's like, everything's kind of being exposed, all the bullshit's sort of being exposed, and it's sort of like, you know, I feel like we are, we need to evolve forward into the kind of like a new way of thinking, because all these old ways are just not working anymore, because they're all being um, exposed as like these kind of outdated models.
1: I agree. I think it's a time of growth. It's a time of social revolution on, on all levels. Part of it is just, again, the social media, so much information's out there. And I think we're going through a very painful time. Mm-hmm. And as I've ever seen in, in my 50 years, things go up and down. And right. I think we're, we're going to Things are going to I know <laughs> people are going to get sophisticated enough to understand and recognize what's going on. And we're going to, you know, we're going to hopefully move forward from all yeah, this with, yeah. a, with a better understanding of each other. Right. I, there's, I, some, there's some optimism for you.
0: I agree, man. I agree. It's like uh, uh, I don't know. I, I, I it, it's it's there's just, you know, this whole the whole idea of the singularity where everything's happening at once because technology is yeah. advanced. It's exactly. happening and it's like yeah. everything's kind of falling apart. It's weird. It's a weird time. I mean, we're, it's kind of the best time to be alive in a way, just because it's so crazy and, yeah, and right. not boring, you know? Exciting and interesting. <laughs> yeah, expecting. yeah.
1: So, enough about that bullshit. Yeah, let's, yeah. Uh, let's talk about art. So, what <laughs> well, are you working on right now, Chet? Uh, I'm working
0: on this book, this dystopia book that this is a Kickstarter I did. Um, wow. It's three years late. So, I, I'm really. <laughs> You know, past the point of freaking out now and just really trying to get it done Uh, where I'm.
1: Are you you writing it as well? No,
0: I I, it's 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 a weird book. It's I'm mythologizing all of my paintings into one world and one dimension. And this guy, this guy did the Mike Carell, the guy who used to uh, podcast co-host the podcast with me. And he he directed the documentary about me. He's a really good writer. So what he did is basically interview me about every painting I've ever painted. and since all of my paintings are very intuitive, like I don't really think of what I want to do. It's, it's, more, yeah. it's more like a feeling thing. You know, I'm not – I'm obviously the way I'm interviewing you, I'm not great verbally. I'm more of like a visual type person. So he interviewed me, and I would tell him, you know, what I knew for sure about each painting. Right. And, was, and I found out, like, wow, I had no idea I knew that about that painting. I'm sure you can understand. And that's, that's
1: why I started writing. That's yeah, right.
0: <laughs> so he wrote down everything we knew for sure. And then we set put it all together and said, okay, what is this world like that now that we have all these facts? A lot, Most of them are still, you know, this is just a tiny sliver of this reality. And then we kind of figured out what the world was like. And then I had um, him put it into text because I'm not a writer, you know, so. So anyway, I'm basic almost done um, with ready to give all the materials to uh, Mackie Osborne, which I was going to bring up. Mackie and Buzz Osborne from the Mel, uh, Buzz from the Melvins. You know uh-huh. that band, the Melvins. I do, yeah. He, I was going to tell you, Mackie is his wife, and she's doing the um, book design for me. She's a uh-huh. great, great graphic designer. But they have a mask collection like you have with the plastic masks. They have a killer oh, really? mask collection. It's huge. Uh-huh. They got like every plastic mask. Ever wow. made, yeah. So, anyway, I had to bring that up, but that's, yeah, I to see that. That's basically um,
1: what I'm working on. But you, that's so it's so cool to to bring you know to to put a theme to all the paintings and, and to unify them, and um, you know uh, those stories that are created while you you make these characters, while you live with them. Um, and again, like I was saying, that was a big part of why I started writing, I mean, I always have written. Even as a kid, I, I loved making books. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a kid, it was you know it was construction paper and staples and pictures right. and words. And, and I remember as a kid just stapling together. And once I did that, I had a book, and it was right. just a <laughs> thing. I made all these books. And uh, you know, early in my year, early in my career, I was focusing on getting my art career going. But when I could finally start writing and putting together, you know, putting the two together, it was so exciting to again make those those books
0: yeah and, how how, and, how was that transition into writing i mean that's like to me it's well, so i'm so not naturally talented at writing that it really and but i love reading
1: but you're a storyteller i mean yeah, all artists yeah. are, you know right, right. behind every painting like you just found out even if you're aware of it or not you right. are Um, uh, but, uh, for me, I always, I wanted to go into comics in my teens and early twenties, uh, but, uh, I just not fast enough. And, and, uh, you know, I don't have the, I want to over render everything. So I just wasn't cut out for it. I just wasn't fast enough. It's what it came down to. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to tell these stories and I had all these stories, uh, but what, what finally happened is. All through my 20s, I was mentioning earlier how I was just producing massive amounts of work, and uh, somewhere around, around my early 30s, uh, I started to burn out, and what happened is I'd had several jobs where I'd had a lot of freedom. I was my own art director on, and once those jobs were finished, I went back to doing um, commissions uh, for book covers and game covers, and uh, those it seemed like the better the job paid, the, the more you know, <laughs> you know the more marketing uh, that's that's true in the
0: film industry for sure but how, yeah. how you go and the bigger the film the worse
1: it is in that way and it becomes frustrating when people give you directions and make you do things that makes a painting worse it's uh, just, it just kills your soul kills you. kills and you. um so i was getting burned out and i just <laughs> said how can i get control of my art and this was you know probably early 2000s or something Um, and it was, it's amazing how much things have changed because even then there weren't the outlets to, 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 to make it either in fine art or have the social media outlets to, to, to support your work, Patreon, or just even to reach out to people. You needed to go through a publisher in some direction or another. So the most obvious way for me to get control of my work was to write books and illustrate for them. Um, and I started writing, at first it was you know the, the heavily illustrated novels like The Plucker and Devil's Rose, which has a painting and text on each page. But the, once I started writing that, that, that excitement, that learning curve excitement took off. Because as we were mentioning earlier, when you start painting, every painting's better than the next. And it's so much adren- adrenaline in that. With the writing, it was the same thing. It was like I was getting it. It was like, oh, okay, okay. And I see what I'm doing wrong. Right. I did a lot of bad writing before I could ever, you know, really put the words together so that it was a, a story as interesting for somebody to read. But anyway, my heart was in it. Um I did my and I'll tell you a quick antidote to this. This is how passionate and dedicated, I don't know if dedicated is the right word, it's obsessive. Obsessive <laughs> is the right word. Once I put my head to something, um, I started writing and I and I wrote my first um book, The Plucker, and uh Uh, went to an editor to get some feedback and and she did everything she could to talk me out of writing. She was just essentially (laughs) saying, some people have a knack for this, you know, it's just a language they understand. And, you know, for most people, they would have taken that as as like, okay, maybe you should do something else. But, you know, I went and, and bought Twenty books on writing, mm. and, I read, and I studied, and I paid attention, and um, I'm not saying that I, I ever mastered the craft. Nobody ever does, but I got to a point where I could tell the story I wanted to tell um, in a way that uh, that uh, you know a certain segment of people like to read it. Right. Um, so so that obsession took off. And one other anecdote on that. So I did the the, the sort of the picture mm. book thing, and then I decided the 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 writer and artist in me are a little bit competitive, and the writer in me wanted to know, "Hey, can I write a book without all the pictures? You know, would somebody buy my writing on its own? It it, it needed validation that part. So I wrote the Child Thief, which is a, um, a a dark retelling of the Peter Pan myth, and I wrote this book, this big book. And the same thing, we we shopped it around, and I had like four rejections from four <laughs> different publishers. And finally, uh, Diana Gill at, um, HarperCollins read it and she said, you know, this needs a lot of work, but there's something here, you know, are you, are you willing to do a lot of work? And I said, it was, and she sort of put me through boot camp on this book. Wow. Um, wow. but again, it was just that obsessive nature. I can do this. I want to be able to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, that book has gone on to sell almost over a hundred thousand copies, which wow. is just, just amazing, <laughs> amazing to me. Uh, and I think part of the reason I say that is because I've I've always been secure as an artist, but I'm very insecure as a writer. Um, with art, you know, you can look at a painting and you can see it, it's you can see if it's decent or not if you if you are successfully bringing something to life. But writing is very much um you know it's it's interpretive it's everybody has a different opinion right. which you learn once you start seeing the reviews you know some people love 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 it and some people don't get it. Right. Uh, right. but uh anyway I think I've gone on a couple of, pand- <laughs> But yeah.
0: oh I was gonna ask you did you read the uh Stephen King book on writing? I'm sure you I did yeah did. I, I got that book. That really made me want to write. You know I, I thought that was a great book. it
1: was, it, it was that was very helpful. Um, but, but yeah, so that opened up a whole nother window of expression for me to be able to put the pictures and words together. Yeah. And uh,
0: that's, yeah, I'd, I'd love to, you know, yeah. I'd love to, that's something I want to do in the future along with, uh, you know, I guess I'm more oriented to maybe making films than I am writing books because of my background in the film industry yeah. because before, even before I, when I was like nine or ten years old, I used to make Super Eight films. <laughs> yeah, and you, uh, I got yourself, what's that?
1: Do you see yourself doing that?
0: I, 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 I <laughs> I'm such a huge movie fan, and um I, I don't know. It's weird. I feel like because I have that background when I was a kid of making movies. And then working in the film industry and seeing wow. how how the whole process works, I'm pretty sure I could do it. I'm pretty sure I could direct
1: something. I would love 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 to see you bring uh, something. <laughs> yeah, Come I on. mean
0: that's kind of the ultimate goal with that dystopia book. Is that um, God? I would, to me, seeing uh, uh, a Netflix series, it's it's pie in the sky dream. But yeah, uh, I was thinking it'd be so cool to do. Okay, check this out. I was thinking um, like because nobody has ever just given me anything. it's. I've always had to kind of make my own way because my sure. my tastes are a little off, off center from uh, most people that have money, I guess. I was thinking, you know, once this book is done, if I can't get something going through some traditional um, avenues, I was thinking it would be cool to do a sh- series of short films, like on, put them on YouTube for free and do like five minute movies Really? You oh, know, just yeah. like little scenes. And then we what the, the idea would be you take the um one of the paintings, one of my paintings, and then you figure out, okay, what's going on in this painting, and then you write a story around it, figure out what's happening, and then at one point in each um, short film, that scene would be recreated from the painting. Yeah. And so the title of the the short would be the title of the painting. And it's Mm -hmm. like, if you got, it seems like if I got a big enough following that way with these little shorts that you could maybe turn it, you know, that's all they need to see is that you're making it, making money or making, you know, getting a fan
1: base. So that's kind of the dream. One one of the, uh, we are talking about everything's trade-offs. Uh, one of the wonderful things now is you can, you can make stuff now and get it out. Again, before you always had to go through a publisher or a, a company right. or produce, you know, a, a studio or so forth. But, uh, you know, now the technology is there not only to make this stuff affordably, but also to get it out there. So yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. What about you? I mean, you've got, I don't like, what, five or six books under your belt now?
1: I I do. I think it's six, six books.
0: Six, so have, do you, have you had any talks about making them into films or –
1: Oh gosh, because um, it would
0: that, be amazing.
1: That, it's such a painful road. Uh, meaning, uh, you've been in the Hollywood industry, so you probably know very well. Um, almost all the books have been optioned at one point. Some of them have been green, greenlit and just ready to go as film. Oh my god, when stuff happens. I just I, I learned long ago to just not count on anything happening. But uh, and it's it's such a fickle world. Uh, we had the Plucker. With new line cinema, it was Green Light is ready to go. And another company bought new line. And when they bought new line, they just scrapped all the stuff that uh, was on <laughs> it was like, wait, what aren't we making this movie? No, we're not. Um and I learned quickly that I didn't I mean, if it happens, it's great, it's like the lottery ticket, right. but I that I don't want to waste too much effort and time in a world where I have no control of the product Definitely. The- I would rather spend that time making more books and more paintings right. that I I can get out to people. And I know a lot of artists and creatives that have spent 10 years trying to get movie out there. And not only does it never happen, but nobody even sees all that effort. Um, And I don't mean to be negative. Uh, You know, you people have to pursue their dreams. You just have to, but I know this is what I should be doing pictures and words. And I have a platform and and an audience. So that's, where I
0: want to keep my focus. Yeah, that's 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 uh, smart uh, and reasonable. I remember when I uh, <clears throat> well, I got two interesting right. stories. Um, I I know you know Guillermo del Toro from work, yeah. working with him on help the Hellboy movies and stuff, and um, he always had like a bunch of things he was shopping around. Like he always had like five projects he was trying to get made, and yeah. you know, for years and years, a guy like him couldn't get these movies made. So it's like you know. What, what are the chances I could? So I, I have the exact same attitude. I figure I'm going to make this book and then just, I'm I'm not going to sweat it either way. You right. know, It probably won't happen, but it could happen. So I'm just going to kind sure. of be open, but it was funny because, uh, Mike Mignola, um, he, I, I met him through Guillermo on the Hellboy movies and uh-huh. he was kind enough when I was, I was thinking about doing like a comic version of it early on and he was kind enough to, uh, chat with me about it on the phone and give me some advice and he's like well first off it's probably he he said first off it's probably never going to make it into a movie so because i was telling him my hopes and dreams he's like it's it's probably not going to make it into a movie the fact that hellboy made it into a movie is a total miracle and so i was like you know he was just totally being honest with me and it's true you know
1: it's the stars have to line
0: up yeah yeah it's heartbreaking i mean when guillermo del toro can't make can't make uh uh, when at the mountains of madness happened, then right, you know, you, you you understand that world, and um, you know, those people who are at least were in charge of things when I was in the film business are definitely not visionaries, <laughs>
1: put it that no, way. They're, you know, they're dealing with millions and millions right. of dollars investment, there's so much risk, their jobs are at risk, and it's it's always easier to say no than yes. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I do understand, I do too, yeah. You As know, much, if, if, if I had 100 million dollars, I would be really I know, I know. What movie I put it into. I know. You know,
0: that that's the thing. It's like, you know, I spent so many years being so pissed at the film industry cuz I was working in it and and uh, like you're saying getting art directed yeah. and, and being forced to make your designs look lame when you know when you know what good is and then you're fight, right. then you're fighting. I want to make your movie better for you and they won't let you make your movie better. It's like that's drives you insane. But at the same time, you know, after I got some distance, I was like, you know, I totally get it. It's a lot of money. It's like right. this, you know, this guy's ass is on the line. He's going to get fired if he if he, you know, blows too much money on this f- series of films or whatever. You know, so right. I get it. I understand it. I'm, but it's you know, it's because I'm, fifty one. So you understand For things.
1: <laughs> but but it's not conducive to breaking fresh ground, and that's why right. so many movies are you know, repeating what's gone before them right? because right, it's right. so much easier to sell something if you say it's like such and such and such and such. And yeah. such yeah, and yeah, yeah. Dude, here's something nobody has ever seen before. <laughs> it sounds great. Let's make it. <laughs> like, <by the> way.
0: <laughs> but, you know, like Kickstarter stepped in and, and uh, you know, and Patreon and all that. There's all, it's, it's exciting. There's, there's ways of getting things done nowadays that, you know, there weren't before.
1: It is and it is so exciting. And I agree. It's so liberating. You know, for the first time I feel like any project I want to do, you know, if I'm willing to put in the time and the effort, yeah. it you know, it will get it's Also, yeah, it'll get fun, also it takes all the risk out of it because I can come up with an idea I think is the most awesome thing in the world. I can put it out there and if no interest is generate generated if the page if you know, if the Kickstarter fails, then that just saved me two years of my life and right. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You Put,
0: you're putting it directly to the fans, and, and they'll yeah. let, you, let you know if it's you know gonna fly or not. But you haven't thought of doing a Patreon by any chance, have you?
1: Um, one I would of the love
0: to see your Patreon. I would be I, so I there have, subscribing it.
1: <laughs> well, I have considered it, but one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm I'm trying to to minimize all my commitments. I'm trying to yeah. I, I'm trying to look at life is what are the things that really bring me joy and. Um, and, and to focus on them, and uh, you know, the Patreon would be very rewarding to have that back and forth with people. But you know, there are other things I'd rather do. Um, so m- maybe it's 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 about focus. I'm trying to focus on the things that bring me the most joy. Part of you know, as you might have known, as you, as you get older and uh, your testosterone lowers, and and you, I personally find it harder. Things that used to bring me pleasure and joy and interest me, m- maybe some of the gleam, glitter has, has worn off. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to, f- to get back to the core of the things that bring me the most joy. Um, and then thus, part of that is simplifying my yeah, life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's… If, Everything is so much work, you know, just doing conventions that's, oh, that can be a full-time job. That's uh, hard selling work, hard selling hard work. prints to your website, you know, it can become a full-time job. Yeah, and, so. and it's like, do I, do I want to be spending, you know, all this time packing and shipping prints or do I want to try to make more paintings? and, right. um, and
0: yeah. yeah, I'm not there yet. I want to be there. <laughs> I, I'm like... Uh, physically ready to be there, but I I can't, uh, I don't, you know, like I said, I don't have the house paid off yet. It's like, it's better. I'm in a better position than I've ever been, but at the same time, I still have to, to uh, hustle to a certain degree. So
1: Absolutely. And and that is the name of the game. And I'm not trying to say that I'm in a point where I, I don't have to be aware of the monetary returns. I think what I'm trying to say is, is if, if I enjoy painting, if that's the core of it, if I do less of this thing, If I have to make X amount of dollars, if I can make that amount of dollars just with painting, instead of uh, the the time, what am I trying to equation (laughs) is if if all that time and effort equates to the same amount of money, if I can push more of it over to the painting and less over to maybe some of these other issues, that's my goal.
0: Right, right. It's more like working (laughs) smarter instead of working harder, that whole thing.
1: Or hopefully working funner. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Um, Yeah, yeah.
1: But it does at the end of the day, the, you know, the, it does have to have, you know, there, there has to be a financial uh, equation to that. I, I do have to monetize my creativity right. and, um, and it's always going to be a consideration.
0: You've probably never had a problem with that. I don't imagine because I've never had a problem with trying to monetize things. And I know that a lot of artists i run into are very idealistic about you know selling out and this and that but you, being that probably i'm guessing because you um got into the illustration industry early on it was you were making money with your artwork so it's not a weird thing to charge money for work and make a living off of it
1: you know what i'm saying yeah no i i agree uh, I'm, uh I, I don't know i mean perhaps uh, you know i'm i'm a business I just, yeah, I have no problem. I mean, that's, <laughs> here's a better way to put it. I always, I consider it, I'm trying to make a bubble. I'm trying to make a creative bubble. And the only way, money equates to freedom. Uh, so the, the more, you know, if I can do a job that's very commercial and I get paid a lot of money for it, to me, that equals more freedom to do other paintings. Mm-hmm. I'm always willing to do, you know, if, if the the reward is well enough, if this painting pays enough for me to spend two months doing three paintings that are just for me. Right. I'm always going right. to do that. So I've always, um, well, it's even more to that, there's also, you know, when you have a family and you have kids to raise and you have a certain responsibility, you don't have the luxury of saying no, right. you know, to, to right. things, uh, um, you know, if, if you're single and you're an individual and you're just working for your art and that's all that matters, that's fine. You can make those sacrifices, but um, I just didn't have that freedom when my kids were young. Um, and now I finally do have that freedom and I'm trying to make the choices that are a little more and selfish isn't the word, but you know, they're for me as opposed to right. that. Right. That's a, a bunch of tangents there, but the end <laughs> of the thing is, um, you know, I want to make a living at art. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to try to do it in a way that is uh, most creatively satisfying for me.
0: Yeah. Well, you've that's definitely been- done that. I mean, you're in the we're both in the kind of one percent of artists anyone that's making a living from their art it's 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 hard to do and it's kind of rare really when you I think uh, I I know I take it for granted sometimes sometimes
1: you're a hustler I mean we're both Uh, hustlers I I know what you you, mean (laughs) you hustle you work day night you you pursue every venue to to you know you do whatever it takes you know. to, to make that work because the option is not doing art. Right. You know, if it's not financially viable, then you don't get to do art. So, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely. Uh, so are you still doing, do you still do commercial illustration work?
1: Um, well, I, I guess what I define commercial illustration work, because I started in commercial art with product rendering and stuff. I've, I've avoided all of that sort of thing. Um, but uh, if you mean, uh, like commercial commissions, such as working for game companies, right. and book
2: companies that's what I mean. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, um you know it, it very like I am fortunate enough at this time to be selective so if it's a, a project or a product um, that I like I'm a big Diablo fan Blizzard fan so every opportunity I get to collaborate with those guys I, I do I love the, I believe in the product I, I mm-hmm. believe in the company and the people so that's always a joy um yeah and if you know if it's if it's an author or a book that um, I'm excited about, and then, you know, to, to be completely frank, if something comes down the pipe that has an extraordinary budget that I can't say no to that again, buys me several months freedom, right. I'll take that as well.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. That's, that's pretty, that's, um, that's a great place to be Yeah. that you have yeah. that option. It's amazing. I mean, it's great. You're, you know, you deserve it, but it's still, it
1: took, it's, it took 30 years. To yeah. Get right. <laughs>
0: It's it's but it's well deserved, you know. It's uh
1: And it also it, it feels like, you know, it could fall out from under me at any time as well. You oh know, really? I mean, you still feel that way? <laughs> well, you know, it and, and this brings up a thing I think all artists probably deal with to some degree is is you know the insecurity of art, the feeling of am I still relevant to you know, you hmm. the early part of your career you're climbing a mountain right and then you get to a point where you've established yourself and your brand and then there again, there's so many talented and, Man. and, and wonderful voices out there. Just every day I discover new artists, it's like, where this person come from? Um, there's, and you mentioned so much media out there. There's so much diversion and people, you know, f- you, you can f- get buried in it quickly. So there is a certain insecurity that if I don't keep producing, you know, I will be forgotten mm-hmm. type of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh,
0: I, yeah. I, I find that um, just when I feel that way, I just focus on the art for most problems, actually, when it comes to problems of insecurity or or whatever, feeling like, you know, you're not relevant and there's all these new artists. I just feel like the answer is always 99% of the time. Just go back to the easel, focus on the artwork, just paint, you know, just get back to it.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. You put your heart and soul into it. And then fuck everything else. (laughs) And at some point, you know, you're going to die. So right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, just uh, be zen with that.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, I, I just feel like, they're, like I was mentioning, you know, even if I painted a thousand more paintings, there's a thousand more paintings I need to paint. So uh right. um, yeah. but I think it was Norman Rockwell that always said that, that you know, that perfect painting is the next one.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why I, I feel like, you know, that's why I've never, I've never felt like uh, I wanted to hold hold on to a painting after it's done i kind of would rather sell it because it just means i could paint another one because for me it's all about the process yeah. you know it's nice to see it done but the fun part is painting it you know it is that's yeah. the, it's the game
1: and you know throughout my life you know when uh, i moved around a lot in the military and it, you know there was often times where you, you felt very um isolated and and whenever times were rough and bad is that art has always got me through it. Art was always that wonderful place I could go and kind of tune out the rest of the world. and and it still feels that way, and I you know I feel very lucky that that's the case. and um and you're right, just at the end of the day, when I try to paint, what I try to do is block out all those insecurities, block out all the you know what people are judging or or, or you know, how's this going to be looked at, and just try to get back into that zone that zone of when you were 16 years old and you were in your room and you were mm-hmm. just <laughs> it was the best place in the world to be. And, uh,
0: yeah, that, that was, you know, when I, when I started painting, cause, cause you know, I came out of the film industry and I was like for 20 years working in the film industry. And, you know, when I sat down at the easel and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to teach myself how to paint. I was just like, I, just completely drew a blank. I didn't know what to do. And for a, a year, I was kind of messing around and doing stuff that's a lot different than what I'm doing now. All of it kind of dark and weird, but not really finding my spot until I I uh, realized that I just I need to go back to, actually, before 16 years old, five years old, three years old, where it's like, you're doing it purely for the joy. And so I was like, okay, exactly. if I was going to do something purely for the joy, what would it be? And it was like, monster portraits, obviously.
1: Now, your your style, um, you know, the, you have a very unique voice. Uh, your art is something that you instantly recognize. And to me, that's, you know, that's is nice. such a, a, lo- a big statement on any artist if, if they have such a strong, unique voice. What were your, I mean, it sounds like you were self-taught, but what were your biggest influence? I mean, was it, were you just, what were you looking at to get I guess what I'm trying to figure out is where your style came from, because it is so unique. It is.
0: Thank you. I, I, you know, my, some of my earliest stuff, it's weird. It's like, I got into your stuff in the nineties and it's like the same time I was in therapy for my own uh, personal issues from when I was a kid. And so that was, that was like a big, uh, when I kind of went through therapy and got over these problems I was having, I, I, I started drawing again, like for, for yeah. myself and some of the first stuff I was looking for, cause I wanted to show you, but there was this one drawing. It was really a good drawing. Cause I was, you know, like in my mid twenties by then, I guess, or like wow. late twenties. And it's so brahm looking at it now. It's so embarrassing because it's, it looks like something from your first book. It's like a profile guy and it's got one of those masks totally covering the face, you know, You're like ready? all armored up. All right, I, if I find it. it, I'll send it to you. Okay. But... um. You know, you were a big influence. Uh, I had to, I really felt like I kind of had to watch myself because I was ripping you off, kind of. So I was like, I was very aware of that. Um, Frazetta was always, you know, Frazetta was like my first favorite artist when I was a kid. Um, Giger was a big one. And then Bechinski was like the, the la, you know, the, I think I, uh, working with Tool, my friend Adam, who's in the band, he gave me a book of, uh, Bekshinsky you know that you know Bekshinsky sure oh yeah. absolutely and and I, that just completely was like whoa that's this is
1: amazing and yeah, another person with such a unique voice no, nobody else is like him, right, right? And, and
0: on top of that so much amazing work like you know most artists do some masterpieces and then they have good work and then they might have a clinker here or there and his were like most of them were I thought masterpieces you know,
1: most of it was great, amazing yeah. work. And, it shows what happens when you're isolated and, you know, in a communist country. Right.
0: Yeah, that's true. I never thought about
1: that. But what's, uh, uh, I guess, so you didn't have any formal training. It was really looking at art you liked and going through the Chetzar filter yeah, and, uh, and coming out and just, Yeah, and you know, and I,
0: what I was doing more than anything, I think, was going from my sketchbooks, because whenever I would doodle and sketch, that kind of was, you know, more unique than stuff that I was thinking about. Like when I first started painting, I was, I was trying too hard almost to come up with a style. And so I started going through my sketchbooks and I was like, Oh, this is kind of different. And, and just sort of building on that and just trying to, I don't know, man, I just, I'm really still not sure, actually. It just kind of yeah. happened.
1: as <laughs> well, amazing as you are as a painter, your sculptures are even more amazing. And, and I never had a chance to see one up close until that Copro show that I went to that you had a piece there. And just the the not only the beauty of the, the, the design itself but as you moved in closer the the textures that just it, it just seemed like it got better the closer you got uh-huh. and obviously that's from all your years in film work right yeah
0: yeah that was you know that sculpt i always say sculpting is way easier for me than painting like i, I was painting i was sculpting professionally since like 1986 doing it 40 hours a week every day you know yeah. it's kind of on the job training so um i sculpting's a breeze. It's like, I feel like I can pretty much sculpt anything easily. Painting is still, you know, I didn't start that until I was 33. So that's still kind of a challenge, but uh, yeah, I, I got to work with, you know, all the best people in the effects industry and, and some amazing artists in the uh, effects world. Do you see
1: yourself doing more sculpting in the future or is it? uh...
0: Yeah. I, you know, it's just a matter of finding time. I love it. I love it. Every time I sit down and sculpt, I'm like, Oh, I forgot how much I love this you know,
1: <laughs> is it harder to monetize the sculpting as far as, yeah, fine art?
0: yeah, it is. It's harder to sell sculpture because sculpture takes up space. It's, you know, it's, it's simple as I think, um, well, there's a few factors, but one of it, it is, uh, the expense S- sculpture yeah. usually involves more expense. Like you can spend 50 bucks on paints and, um, a canvas and have a, piece to sell um but if you're going to paint it do a sculpture you have to mold it and cast it and it's it's like hundreds, hundreds of dollars just to get one piece out so mm-hmm. you have to charge more for it it takes up space a lot unless it's a wall hanging thing it takes up yeah. physical space and people don't have a lot of space so it's easier to hang a painting up so well,
1: I, I love it when when a creatives um you know com, combine their their creativity and sort of collaborate with themselves and uh, one of the wonderful things with you is when you have a painting and then you sculpt the frame. I just find that to be <laughs> a complete uh, statement. So to I speak. just,
0: you know, I was just trying to find an edge, you know, to try and make right. it stand out. Yeah, but and I, it does.
1: It's beautiful.
0: Oh, thanks. I, I originally, when I started uh, the fine art thing, I wasn't going to be a painter. I was going to be a sculptor, and I did my first sculpture, which is this sculpture called Soft Spot. It's kind of a guy going like you know, smiling and Uh he's got like a weird flat head and I spent so much time. I was working at Rick Baker's at the time and I had the best sculptor in pretty much in the business working next to me. This guy, Mitch Devane, who's really amazing. He taught me how to do goose flesh and wrinkles. Like you had to do really high level detail at Rick's because it was kind of the top of the line shop. And so I spent like a year sculpting that thing on my lunch break and on weekends. And, um, and then I was like, I'm going to do this all myself. So I molded it myself. I cast it myself. I ground off the seam myself. And it just took so much effort and so much money uh-huh. at the time. I didn't have it. I got the thing done and it looked amazing.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and I was like, this is the kind of stuff I want to do. And then I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to support myself. So then I started painting. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm going to teach myself how to paint because I know how to draw. And I've been you know airbrushing and painting creature st- suits and prosthetics. For years, yeah, yeah. so I did have uh, a background in color theory and stuff like that. So I just, you know, uh, s- switched gears and taught myself how to paint in oils. But well, you know?
1: now, now that you've, you know, established such a strong brand and vision that you have, you mentioned, you know, asked me if I take on commercial work anymore. Do you, do you find there are certain commercial projects that come your way that that you're still happy to? be part of? Or-
0: yeah. I, you know, once in a while, not very often. Um, when I first left the film industry, I was like, fuck this. I'm so sick of it. I was like really angry and, and <laughs> like sick of it and bitter. And then I got out of it and I was like, you know, that was a pretty cool job actually. And, and, and wow. I got some distance now and I realized that I was more mad at myself because I wasn't brave enough to take the steps yeah. to do my own work. And that was really unfair to kind of blame the industry if you don't like it then do your own thing then you know so um but i uh what was the question now
1: (laughs) do you still are are you do to work from time to time i mean myself i i i've had so much time to do personal projects now i actually miss the collaborative nature of work on certain projects so do you miss that do you find yourself doing that from time to time or i
0: I do miss that every once in a while i'll um see a film and i'm like i wish i would have worked on that like when the walking dead started i was like oh because i had all these friends that were working on it i was like i want to do zombies for the walking dead that would be so much Uh, fun and um but you know it's but then it's like you you think about how it was and it you know it's when you think about you know how it is it's just with Doing that commercial work when you get people breathing down your neck it's very you know, frustrating
1: I, I totally get that i, I find that um I, I take on one or two commercial jobs a year and uh i i find i enjoy the collaborative nature for the most part now and what i'm able to do is just like you i had a lot of bitterness about the commercial work because it kept me from putting my own vision out there they kept crippling my vision so to speak but now I have such a good attitude about it because I really go into it, and this sounds terrible—like I'm a pair of hands, like I'm part right.
0: of. The, that's a valuable thing in that world, though. I mean, it's important to be that for those people. But
1: I, but I go into it like I am collaborating, like I'm working with a group that it's not all about my vision. And there's nothing wrong with it being all about your vision. But I'm, I'm now I can separate that. I have right. a, where I can put my personal vision out there. But then it's fun to have a space where I am part of many other people part of the example working with blizzard on um diablo is it's you know incredible artists there and designers and to have their designs to come to me and i get to sort of interpret their creativity right. Right. with mine um is a lot of fun now if i had to do that full time every yeah. day, i would get burnt out on it i right. would be like you know i need to go do my own thing um yeah. so uh, yeah yeah, yeah. So
0: I, I, I definitely, I, I miss that aspect of it for sure. Cause it's, it's way more of a solitary pursuit doing your own thing.
1: Is uh, Are you lonely in the studio? Or I mean, I, I miss shooting the shit with people in the studio. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, I do kind of. What's miss, funny. What's <laughs> funny is when I left TSR, I was just so sick of being around people and people <laughs> around looking. At I just like, I, I was so happy. I was home probably for five years. I didn't even think about having anybody around right. me. But now I'm like, oh gosh, I would love to go <laughs> in with five other artists and just, you know, throw darts and oh, shit yeah. shit.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. I that's one of the big aspects I miss about it is the, you know, the the friendships really that you build yeah. with people. And, you know, you're sitting around, especially at Rick's, it was such a great working environment. It kinda it was that was sort of the the top tier uh uh work situation. Um just sitting around with the most talented people in the field and sure. sculpting monsters. I mean, every day that's pretty yeah. fucking fun when you think about
1: it, you know, that was a dream job. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, I
0: know. And it's weird to, you know, look back at it and I don't know, and just have anything other than fond memories of it yeah. because it was really fun. And especially when I was younger, Oh my God, it was so much fun when I was first getting a paycheck and working yeah. and learning, it was great, but you know, that's just how it goes after, you know when you do something long enough and you see how the sausage is made it loses its its thing it,
1: it does i just i would i yeah I, at times i feel you know very much isolated in my cave it's wonderful you know that Laurie paints with me mm. but uh, i think that's the biggest thing i'm missing right now in my life is is i would love a studio environment where you know four or five other artists and we all went in and paint together and, and i think i could make that happen but what's sad is is we tend to do what's easy, and to have a studio would mean I'd have to get up, I'd have to take showers regularly, I have to
0: <laughs> change of clothes regularly. Um, yeah, I'm right there yeah. with you.
1: <laughs> I'd have to get in a car, and I'd have to <laughs> drive somewhere, and uh, you know, naps would probably become inconvenient, and uh, it, but it would sure probably be good for my mental health to do all those
0: right, things. Right, right. Well, you know, if if it if the call gets strong enough, I'm sure you'll do it. But you know, until it becomes the strong urge. I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty great to make your own hours. It's, it's, you know, it's that whole, you know, six of you're, one, half a dozen of another. trade offs yeah. Know? It's pretty, um, I, I, I do enjoy the solitude. I, I've always been like, uh, a solitary kind of person, although I have friends and stuff and always have, I do, I don't mind being alone for the, for the most part, but I do, um, uh, yeah, I miss that work environment. I miss that. I'm
1: the, I'm the same way. I'm I'm very much an introvert and I think a lot of artists are um but again it's a balance, you know. I yeah. I think ideally I would like to go into that studio one day a week. That right. would probably be the right thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, maybe uh you, you do you have a lot of do you have artist friends where you live?
1: There there's a, quite a, a wonderful artist community out here. Oh, um, really? But the you know, the challenge would be to to try to just set up a studio and yeah, uh,
0: you know. Easy, easier said, <laughs> said than done.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's interesting. We're, we're a bit fragmented out here because we, we have a large gaming community, video gaming community. And uh, so many of those artists tend to be in, in their various companies. Um, and, and I haven't yet found a place, you know, a bar or something where everybody kind of goes right. and, and does talk shop. Um, then we have the fine art community. Uh, a bit of pop surrealism and rock LaRue and uh, that's a really wonderful group to get together and we get together about once a month when they have a new show there oh, that's cool um, but to, to me the best friendships are made when you're working when you're doing something together and not just forced together I mean as an introvert that's what I meant my most awkward where you're you're in a spot where you're supposed to socialize. Let's like talk. <laughs> right. to, you know, you're casually painting, and a conversation comes up, and you talk for 15 minutes, and you go back to painting. Right. Um, that's a little more natural for me. So. You
0: know what? Uh, when I, I I did a um a show, I kickstarted an art show called Dystopia for that Dystopia book project. And, yeah. Uh, and um, it paid for the to me to put this show on to like make a crazy show that had props and sets so so the gallery looked like a building that would be in in beautiful oh thanks <laughs> but um that was kind of like that like because i basically got all my friends to help me make these creatures and sets and so it was definitely one of those like hey let's put on a show kind of thing and there was money to pay for everything and um and everyone just wanted to help. so it was really it brought me back to the old days, when, you know, making movies with your friends and stuff. and it was really like soul enriching, you know yeah,
1: so maybe that's the key is to just come up with a project right. some sort of project um, everybody contribute to,
0: yeah, or uh, have someone else set it up. have someone someone else get the <laughs> get the get the uh, uh, studio and you could just be one of the people that comes to the studio rather than have- it.
1: A group that does a uh, live painting, uh, you know, every other weekend in a place called Georgetown here, and I keep meaning to go in, but I suck at live painting. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so I just. Plus, if I got there, I would probably want to talk more than paint because, right. like, <laughs> all the time. But I need to do that. I need to go in there and drink and paint. That yeah, sounds like a.
0: That's you know, live painting is hard, but it's it's really good for you. I really
1: admire people that can. Yeah, and do people that. that have that skill set are just, you know, amazing.
0: Yeah. I was actually gonna ask you that. One thing I want to ask you is um how often do you use reference?
1: Um it, my process is I always try to draw it first completely from imagination, try to create the composition, everything from imagination, then I do a, a tighter drawing of that. Then I track down reference. I mean, it depends what it is. my m- monsters. I love painting monsters, as do you, because there are no rules. Right. You know, the, the anatomy does not have to be precise. You just go with it, and that's part of the beauty of it. But you know, if I'm doing a very realistic female figure, or uh, you know, things the clothing a certain way and stuff, um, I like to, to 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 understand what I'm painting. Right. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. I can just find things online that i can apply like i can understand how this you know bicep connects with this tricep by this looking mm-hmm. at this builder and i apply it to this creature type of thing um but uh and then sometimes i bring in models and i shoot models and do oh, the whole. Okay. Thing. Uh, it really depends it's i think the easiest way to answer that is whatever is needed to make the best painting i can yeah, um that's i, I like to i like to have more information instead of less uh, you know, the, the challenge with photos is you don't want to become too dependent on that photo. You right. know, you want to try to understand what is underneath the photo that you're seeing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So really it's, it's, it's all over. Every painting is a little different on you know, how I approach it, the reference that I use or don't use. Uh, and it also, you know, what result I'm looking for. Sometimes I like things to be more distorted and, uh, cartooned perhaps
2: right.
1: um, and then sometimes i want things to be you know as real as possible depending on what i'm trying to say with that painting
0: right yeah
1: um, you,
0: you know uh do you know gabe leonard the painter gabe gabe leonard
1: it sounds familiar it, probably part
0: yeah look, look him up because he's he's really really great he's a friend of mine uh, i like the way he works he shoots everything he shoots reference for, for everything yeah and, and he sets all his reference up and then he freehands everything you know, yeah it's like he does this he does sketches rough sketches though he does like rough sharpie sketches and stuff and figures it out. but but everything's distorted. like the hands of his guys are always really big and and it's he's got this cool style, but he is working from photos, so he's not blind because that's that's one of the problems I run into since I'm mostly painting out of my head. and uh-huh. you know I'll use reference if it's like a hand I need in a weird spot. Uh, right. but it's mostly laziness to be honest. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> There's times where you're just like, I don't know where to go because this doesn't exist anywhere other than this kind of half-cocked idea in my imagination, imagination that's not even fully realized inside of my head.
1: Yeah, and And it's again, it's trade-offs. Part of you know what you being forced to to make something work that doesn't exist does create something totally unique. Mm -hmm. I find you know I go to uh, uh, animal anatomy books are very helpful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I tend to want to apply human anatomy to everything, but you know when you put other type of anatomy, it seems to help. Right. Um, but I'm guilty of being lazy too. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I I would,
0: I would like to have the time and, and, and to be able it to photograph is, everything. It'd be cool.
1: Part of it is keeping your interest too, because I right, never. Yeah almost never been able to to do prelims unless i've been required by you know because somebody needs a comp or something and part of that is because i want to discover it in the painting and i and i know Mm -hmm. my painting probably better if i did some preliminary paintings um you know even for zetta he did these beautiful wash sketches to work out those compositions and then he just made it happen um but when i i find when i do that it's almost like I've already painted it, and then it becomes very mechanical. I'm just sort of reproducing what I already mm-hmm. exists. Uh, so again, that's trade-offs. But if I was disciplined, you know, I would make myself, you know, I, I've seen like Linen I've seen him like do comps of each element of the painting, right? Like yeah, rivers, yeah. So that he even gets these beautiful I strokes as the final. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I feel it would it would kill part of the joy of doing the painting. Right.
0: yeah yeah part of the fun is finding it discovering on, it yeah yeah, yeah yeah it's it's like uh it's like a different game. I always see painting as as a game it's it's basically it's play. it's a game. you're trying to create this cool painting and, it's a
1: uh, every, yeah dimension
0: yeah. right right so it's like you know part it's a, another variation of that game is to do it without reference. Yeah, And it's like it's, a different trip,
1: you know? Absolutely. I totally get that. I mean, uh, almost, you know, 90% of my early work was all from imagination. And there's such a joy in that just to sit down and make something right. appear. And uh, and ha- and it happens so much quicker if you're not, you know, doing all the reference and stuff. Um, and I even, in, in my mind, I as I mentioned earlier, I divide those up. There are paintings that are meant to just be imaginative paintings. Right. Um And there's a joy in both of them i mean yeah yeah, for sure you can bring a a certain reality to a piece that you wouldn't have been able to out of your imagination
0: yeah I I, i was i remember i was i was using early on i was using uh more reference and my friend adam actually the guy in tool he was like He's like, yeah, I could tell you use reference on that. I like the ones that you don't use reference on. So I got all like self-conscious. And then I didn't use any reference. I was like, oh, maybe he's right. Maybe that's kind of how I developed my style because I wasn't using any reference material. And then eventually I got to a point where it's like, you know, use reference when you need it. Don't use it when you don't. And that's all there is to it, basically, you know. And everybody's different. You know?
1: (laughs) You know, Norman Rockwell used so much reference and so much and, and it was magic you know yeah. and then there are other artists that use reference and they look like they've lucid a painting and just you know replicate i mean sorry replicated a photo right. and it's it loses its aesthetic quality or it doesn't yeah, develop too
0: stiff or yeah they get kind of hung up on
1: um so yeah it, it, it's whatever works for the individual and for the painting
0: yeah um, yeah
1: i think it's good so but all of that said, uh-huh. paintings that are the most fun for me are the ones that I just come out of my head. Absolutely. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. It's always different, though, for me, because it's, you know, sometimes it's fun to, to use reference if it's something you've never painted before, uh, like, like yeah. a car or something. You know, it's like, yes. I couldn't just paint a car, I don't think, that would look halfway decent. I'd have to have reference for that. Oh, me, too. You yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, figures and mountainy backgrounds I can kind of do on my own. It's about it. Yeah. You know,
1: uh, I mean, if, if it, it, again, it depends on if you're cartooning, if you're stylizing something, you know, you can do the jet. Chet Sar from Imagination Car, you know, right. it's not
0: a real. Yeah, yeah, car. right. That's true. It <laughs>
1: <laughs> be cool. It's gonna be some kind of weird organic. Car thing, right? <laughs> That's
0: true. That's true. I I, pay, I, I I painted a hearse though because this character in the Dystopia, I imagined him always driving a hearse, and I and I bought a hearse model like this co- really cool nineteen what was it sixty eight hearse like my favorite model hearse, sure. and uh, took photos of that, and that was that was a learning experience. That was really. Yeah. Uh, it's you know there's a lot of things i need to paint you've painted yeah. a lot of different things that's what you've seems like you've painted everything uh,
1: I, <laughs> I, I love variety and then that's one of the points i was going to make about photos and imagination and stuff and even the approach um i feel it's very important for me to to variety is key and by that even to like painting on canvas and then switching to wood to mm-hmm. switch into illustration board to painting opaquely to transparent. Um, I find I want to do approach each painting a little bit differently it just makes it, um, it it's like a puzzle like each painting's a puzzle yeah. and and then it's you know trying to figure out the puzzle and how to make it work and often it goes really bad but that's to me one of the joys of oil painting is the the more it screws up often the better it ends up in the long run because then I have to go out of my Comfort zone, my normal way of painting, and I have to really try something different to, right, to fix. Right. <laughs> Often, when a face or something is becoming too literal and too stiff and plasticky, you know, then I just take the scrubby brush and just start right. steering things around, and things happen. And uh, and uh yeah,
0: uh, yeah, I noticed that uh <laughs> about your work. Of course, I always always have been analyzing how, how you painted this, how you painted that, and I could definitely tell there's stuff that was, you know, more like direct painting and other stuff where you definitely used glazing. I'm certain, yeah. I, you know, where you got, kind of got these right. like dark, deep blues coming in from the hands. And it's like, it's interesting. Cause it's like, as I, you know, had gotten better, I was able to recognize, Oh, I know what he's doing there. I could see that. I know that trick. <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> and I always feel like there's, as with you, I, I never had any, um, any uh, in uh instructors i you know i learned by looking at art i like and emulating trying to figure right. out how they did it through trial and error because of that i always feel like um you know i'm missing something like there's a magic way to paint that if i right. was taught like my paintings would be able to go <laughs> to that next level Shit,
0: um, your paintings are so next level already i was looking well, through this art of Brahm book sitting right well, here and i was just like i can't believe it you know, it's like, it's been a long time since I looked at your stuff and it just was like, uh, I can't believe how much, um, how many amazing paintings are in that book. It just completely was like flooring me. You. It's incredible.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's awesome to hear. Thank I mean, you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was just like,
1: I feel relevant again for a moment. <laughs> no
0: way. <laughs> You're like the king, man. <laughs> But, the, the you know, case. again,
1: like you go through uh, where I get my inspiration so much today is going to art museums and, and seeing, nice. you know, uh, paintings from 100 years ago. And again, there's that feeling that there was a whole school of painting and approach that has been lost and just uh, methods that, you know, that nobody seems to be able to replicate again. And uh, Yeah, I know. I, f- I feel like part of it's a quest to, to rediscover that
0: yeah i think you know i think any serious painter feels that you know Uh, i i think so um a lot of these uh kind of academic guys like jeremy lipking and Uh you know him and sean cheatham and these guys are great amazing painters you know um i want to be able to paint like that
1: And and it is nice that we're in a time where where there is actually um accessible for people to go to and learn real paint, illustration right. skills, real painting skills, um, and uh, and I think that's part of the re- part of the reason we're seeing such a revolution in quality painting, um, you know, across all fields, but especially in our field, as people are actually learning real technique and, and learning real anatomy, and they're applying it to these things. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, I, I I've I um I get a lot of younger painters coming to me, and the thing I say to them over and over is. You got to learn, you got to, you got to paint the bowl of fruit you got to do, you got to learn the, you got to sure. do the live drawing, you got to do the fundamentals, you got to do all the stuff you don't want to do. Cause it's like, you know, everybody wants to just paint what they want to paint, but it's like, you have to learn, you got to learn the basics, you sure, know? absolutely, in order to express your idea. Otherwise you're and, not going to be able to express your idea
1: right, or the way you yeah, want to. And part of that is figuring out what you're interested in because that's what you're going to do best. I mean, from the earliest, uh, you know, age, I loved anatomy, you know, mm-hmm. as, as much as I love the macabre and everything, it was really just that connection of muscles and tendons has right. always been what I'm most excited about. And, uh, and if you look at my paintings, they're always focused on a figure because that's where my interest is. And the backgrounds are always just been something to, to support that. Yeah. Um, and the I, I say that as any starting out artist, you know, figure out what it is that interests you the most, and focus on that, and just let that lead you into learning the rest. I guess. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you that because because we're getting past two hours. I didn't mean to keep you on so long, but man, this is amazing. Um, yeah, it's my
1: visitor in the studio.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask you. But, you can
1: Skype me anytime. We'll chat. Right. Excellent. Yeah,
0: yeah. We should. Maybe we could. We can. We'll, we can uh, exchange cell numbers and be text buddies and, and text
1: each other while we're painting. <laughs> um, a terrible texture. <laughs> you're not okay. i the slowest, it's like those I'm like two thumb guy that just <laughs> takes me a, a minute to write a sentence <laughs> terrible
0: You could just well you could just take a picture and send it. <clears throat>
1: there we're working on
0: um what do you what do you you've been doing this a long time. Um I'm sure you've met a million young artists and there are a lot of young artists that listen to this show. Um is there a piece of advice that you'd wish you had heard when you were starting out or a um, piece of advice you did hear that served you well?
1: Yeah. You know, the industry has changed so much and it keeps changing and it changes so rapidly now that I don't even trust my advice. But <laughs> um, I think, I, th- I think the most obvious thing is just discovering what you love and, um, you know, t- try not, Try not to emulate any one person. Try to emulate, learn from looking at several different artists. Um, a lot of starting out artists make the mistake, and I did as well because mm-hmm. I was so obsessed with Zeta I was just trying to be Zeta yeah. um, But if you draw from less, many influences, even influences outside of art, and put them through your filter, that is your unique vision. You know, that's that's when you're going to come out. I mean, it's all about having a unique voice. Right. Um, one of right. one of my problems with digital art these days is everybody's using the exact same tools and techniques and it homogenizes the art mm-hmm. to something and it makes it harder for digital artists to separate themselves from each other um so try to find ways to 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 get your unique voice out there even if it ends up being using different tools and techniques um you know that other than that don't put the tips of your paintbrushes in your mouth <laughs> and poisoning and, uh, that's and, a good one. <laughs> baldness and uh, black skin. Um yeah,
0: that's uh yeah. That, yeah, that's a that's uh great advice. That's advice I just gave someone recently was like broaden broaden who you're looking at. Like look yeah. at a lot of different artists and um um you know you, p- part I think a big part of developing as a, as an artist is developing your eye for one thing i mean it's so important it kind of doesn't get talked about enough is knowing what even looks good and why it looks good you know and that just the way you train train your eye is just by seeing a lot of great art and then don't look at a bunch of crappy art because it's going to train your eye badly you know poorly so i think uh, uh um yeah seeing as much art as possible because once you start taking in a lot of different artwork it N- you're naturally going to start kind of incorporating it in, in, into what you do, you know,
1: And artwork outside your genre. Um, Early yeah, on, right. I was too narrowly focused, you know, it was just, you know, Wrights and Corbin, Frazetta, the Mobius, there's just a certain group of artists. And, mm. uh, you know, in my early twenties, when I started, went to the Tate museum and started seeing the pre-Rapha- pre-Raphaelite paintings and, and that kind of thing, it really started to broaden, uh, you know, what was possible and, in my personal aesthetics as well.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was one of those people that was painting too much like you and I had to broaden my perspective. <laughs>
1: yeah. But you know, but that's great. Yeah. I, again, there, there was a handful of artists I completely fixated on when I got started that, that was in some ways that was good because maybe if my focus had been if too, too broad, I mean, help me focus on what yeah, I was trying yeah. to do. Um,
0: that's true. But I it also, I mean, we, we also like the same similar artists too, which is kind of funny, yeah. you know, so that's maybe why I was drawn to your work so much.
1: We, we have similar DNA. Absolutely. That's, yeah,
0: that's for sure. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you go because I've kept you way longer than I said I was going to keep you, but um, hopefully you could come on again sometime because this, yeah, is, this is a blast, a- man
1: so nice just chatting with a, a friend and a peer and I've uh, really enjoyed, you know, I, I forget that we're talking to a, an audience. That's so the I, idea. I, <laughs> that's what did I say that I shouldn't have said. Yeah, but
0: you didn't say anything bad. <laughs>
1: it's been a complete
0: joy. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, that's been great. So yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. This is like, this has been a, a big highlight for me. So um, yes, thank you for coming on and thank you listeners for listening and, especially thank you to you Patreon people who are supporting the podcast. Um, if you are not supporting the podcast, you can support it for as little as a dollar a month at, uh, patreon.com slash dark art society. That's it. Yeah. Um, and if you do that, you get let into the secret Facebook group and you get all these little bonuses and stuff. Oh, that reminds me. Let me take a screen grab. Do you mind if I take a screen grab of you?
1: Oh, sure. I'm in my my sterile office. I'm not in my that's, studio, but uh, <laughs> go right
0: ahead. That's OK. People want to see that. They want to see what you're, you're doing. And... Yeah, OK, so that, that's good. That'll go up on the Patreon if that's cool. Okay. (laughs) All right, so yes, thank you everybody uh, for listening, and thank you, Brom, for coming on.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I will uh, see you all, or I won't see you, but I will talk to you all next week.